welcome to the Faithless Brewing Podcast. I am David Robertson, and I am joined by the CEO of the Faithless Brewing Podcast. He is Dr. Daniel Schriever. Dan, what is going on? It is the eve of a new format. It is, it is, and what a format it's looking to be. This is going to be a sweet episode. We were trying to pick a card to kick off brewing season for Lost Cameras of Ixalan, and I think we just like couldn't find one because you had too many deck lists on your mind. Yeah, I don't think I've ever brewed up so many decks. I mean, I don't even have them all in here, but uh, for the people who have access to the show notes, they will get to see, I don't know, 15, 16, 17 decks. Some of them a little similar to each other, some of them wildly different. So yeah, I'm super excited for a bunch of different cards in this set. I think Tuesday the 14th or maybe it's the 15th is when we can finally play with them. And then, of course, it takes a while for the rental sites to actually get the cards that you want so there's a delay there as well indeed but i think this this set will certainly keep us busy so plan for today is to just dive in it's going to be a bit of a brewing bonanza there's very little rhyme or reason to the, to the text we're going to bounce around between we're just going to get through as many as we can uh dave has got a, like a dozen or more brews i've got a few that i also chipped in i just couldn't help myself and we'll also hear a little bit time permitting about some of the decks that david has been testing over the last couple of weeks including our old friend your little turtle almost getting that trophy just inching towards that 5-0 yeah this little turtle race <laughs> but uh, the hair beat him just at the end but it, it looked pretty sweet <laughs> Yes, yeah, so and before we get to all that we need to do a little housekeeping at the top we want to welcome our two newest patrons Welcome to Manic Mullet, and then, ooh, I might butcher this. So this is Wojciech U, maybe? Is that a Polish name? I believe so. That was a very nice pronunciation. I have no idea if that's correct, but I'm impressed. W-O-J-C-I-E-C-H. Wojciech? Wojciech? Apologies to this individual for getting your name wrong. And welcome. Apologies and a, and a warm welcome to <laughs> and, our warm welcome. <laughs> and of course, Manic Mullet. Who can forget <laughs> Manic yes. Mullet? Um, but yeah, that's the best way to support the show. If you're enjoying brewing with us, you can head over to patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing. Make a pledge at any tier you like. That gets you immediate access to our wonderful Discord community. And gets you access to some perks like the extended show notes where we lay out all our thoughts, all the stuff that we didn't really get time to talk about on air. Um, you can find it here. This is the outline that we work off of. Um, David's always uploading crazy screenshots from his leagues, uh, complete with either his rants or his opponents more often ranting at him. <laughs> it's a nice time. So, as I said, uh, we're just going to get through a ton of brews. All of them are in Pioneer. Is that right? I, I have some modern deck lists in mind, but they're not... Um, mostly just like updates to crab lines so i'm not going to belabor them in this episode i think we're going to be <laughs> focusing on pioneer for these brews okay i will say the, the one thing i wish i had mentioned for modern i don't want to derail us too much we talked about there's a one and a red artifact and you'd like discard a card and draw two cards yeah sahili's lettuce so i wish i'd mentioned that that card is interesting with trash for treasure that's i don't have a deck list i don't have the cards but like just an artifact that just straight up puts a the card that you want in the graveyard and draws towards your trash for treasure. If there's an artifact worth doing, I, I can't say, but we said, oh, is there something that makes this interesting as an artifact? The trash for treasure is a card that makes that interesting because it's an artifact that loots. Okay. 
Yeah, that's actually secretly one of the one of the more interesting cards. Trash for treasure is. Well, no, the Sahili's lettuce, just the tor- tormenting voice artifact, because you know, just at the very end of our of our set review, you know, I had this epiphany that the best card in the set is clearly the trumpeting carnosaur, the pioneer archon of cruelty, right? And that's the dinosaur that you'll want to pitch to the Sahili's lettuce to like get your. Uh, I don't know. It's not really reanimation. It's just making a, a seven power creature. <laughs> but it also sets up your real, real reanimation. And then we talked about Metalwork Colossus with that. And now you could even do Trash for Treasure with it. So you could do it all. Yeah, I think the most thing, well, we'll get to it, but I don't know that you want to play quote unquote enablers with your Carnosaur because Carnosaur already does it. That's the best part about it in my mind is you don't have to play all these crappy cards to put it in your graveyard. Mm. You just kill their Grease Fang <laughs> on their turn and then you have four mana on your turn and you put a Carnosaur back in playing and draw a card. Okay, if we're going to derail briefly into modern, let me also just throw one out there as well. Um, this one came to us via our Discord, courtesy of Texas Tof. He said that, okay, actually, there's that Soul Land, the one that you're very skeptical of, David. Sunken, oh, shoot, I'm forgetting the name. Cavern or something? It's something, Citadel. Sunken Citadel? So it taps for two, but you can only use that mana towards activating abilities on lands. So we were thinking Nykthos, we were thinking Cycling Triomes. Uh, Nykthos seemed like the best way, but Texas have pointed out that, you know, maybe in, in modern you could actually use that land to power up all those weirdo specialty lands that the Calibrated Blast deck plays. Calibrated Blast is like a gimmick deck in modern that's somehow functional. It's like very, very functional. You just have the four Calibrated Blast, two Throws of Chaos, uh, and then a bunch of 15 CMC things, a couple 12s. So... The end up, so the deck ends up playing like 40 lands, 38 lands. There's tons of flex land slots. You can very easily fit in um, some of the new discovery lands that discover four, which coincidentally, which conveniently is enough to hit your calibrated blast or your throws of chaos every time. And then you can also play um, the soul land to just make that happen a little bit sooner. It's not considered at all. Yeah, that sounds pretty sweet. But okay, so that's modern. You'll you'll be hearing more of my Crabvine Souls of the Lost misadventures in, in future weeks once we can actually play with these. Back to the format at hand, though. Pioneer. So we got a bunch of deck lists that we're going to talk about, but I thought maybe as a nice sort of way in, um, we can talk about this very interesting article that friend of the show, Law11, just posted on their substack. Uh, their substack, again, is called What If Brews? Law 11 is often posting not just interesting decks they've been testing, but kind of theory-focused articles on how to approach Pioneer. And this article had a very provocative uh, title. It was just called Archfiend or Shaeldred? Archfiend or Shaeldred? Is Archfiend of the Dross actually better than Shaeldred? And he made a very compelling case that in the format as it currently stands, you'll, you'll often want the Archfiend to be like the more impactful card in the matchup. And he kind of runs through what are the tier one and tier two deck lists. How he arrived at that conclusion was very interesting. Um, so he kind of starts off by asking, why do we even play Shieldred in the first place? Right. And this is getting back to what I think tripped us up during preview week for Shieldred. It's like, well, this is just like another creature that dies to removal. What's the big deal? And it turns out that it's still good enough 
it turns out we were wrong about that, right? That shale grid is obviously just this format-defining card. Digging into the reasons for that, La Levin posits that the scarce resource in Pioneer is, is no longer really card advantage. So the fact that a card like Shaeldred just dies one-to-one -to, -one to removal, even at a tempo loss in many cases, is not necessarily a problem because Shaeldred is providing something else that the format desperately needs. So the idea is that the scarce resource in Pioneer is no longer running out of cards. Every deck can have some kind of engine that draws a million cards. But scarcity instead comes from A, lack of one-man interaction, and B, lack of ability to close out the game very, very quickly. And that's where Shieldred fits in. It's just a card that shuts the door within three turns. And there just aren't that many cards that are capable of doing that. So that's why Shieldred has had such a prominent role. And if you ac accept that theory, then you could see how Archfiend of the Dross, with or without the metamorphic alteration combo, can fill that same role. Like it's just a gigantic 6-6 six, six flying beater. Kills them in, let's say, three hits. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And in some cases, its ability to cause the opponent to lose two life every time a creature dies is worth more than Shieldred's uh, drain on, on card draw. Uh, in some cases, also its evasion. The fact that it has flying means that it kills them just much faster than Shieldred actually can. So what do you make of like the, the underlying logic behind why you would want, A, first of all, why you would want either Archfiend or Shieldred in a deck? Like, do you, do you agree with this idea that the ability to close the game is more important than card advantage? I think that statement is very matchup dependent because one of the things that Shieldred does that Law 11 does not really get into here is it stabilizes your life. So against decks that are more aggressive than you, um, I don't think it becomes a race. I think it just becomes, can you stabilize in time to draw a sweeper effect? So he, for instance, he says that Archfiend is much better than Shieldred against Boros Convoke. I'm not going to spoil the arguments that he makes there, but I don't agree with his analysis. And one of the things you can do is just play Shieldred and then just draw a bunch of cards. And, you know, you can gain six life, eight life in a turn. And yes, you haven't killed Convoke as fast as the Archfiend would, but I don't think you actually win those races very often. So I'm not interested in racing uh, Boros Convoke, just, just as an example. But to his point, there are a lot of decks that go over the top in a way that you can't win the long game. And in that sense, uh, I think he's correct. And, and it's, he's put it in a very eloquent way that I hadn't really thought of before. So I always find uh, these articles really interesting. I think he thinks about the format in a super unique way. I think he thinks about the format in a very deep way. And even if you don't agree, it's just such an interesting way to think about it. It forces you to get deeper into your thinking. Like, okay, I disagree. Why? You know, there's a pretty eloquent case on paper here for why he feels this way. You have to do an almost equal amount of thinking as to why you disagree with some of the, the points. Or maybe you don't disagree at all. Maybe after you do some thinking, you've, you've changed your mind. I found the first point about decks not really struggling to find card advantage to be a little bit troubling. Because I feel like that's often our first instinct when we're looking at a new set or looking at... You know, what, what do these new cards have to offer? Well, often the thing that they have to offer is a, a cool way to simulate a Howling Mine where you're getting two resources a turn or something. And we try to jump through all the hoops to just like make that happen and it'd be so sweet. We're, you know, getting all this advantage, <laughs> drawing all these cards. Um, if if La Levin is correct, we're kind of wasting our time doing that because every deck has access to plenty of that and that's not really what decides games. Um, what we should be focusing on more is just like ending the game, which I'm no notoriously weak at. 
Yeah, I mean, ending the game is all well and good. The problem is then you always have to make decks with a faster clock than the than the opponent, right? I mean, and, and so that's what I've discussed a lot is why you have to interact on turn one if you're not going to be faster than your opponent. You have to either play something on your curve that forces them to stop their normal, you know, their, their nut draw of one, two, three, four, or you have to be um, be able to interact with their nut draw. Those are, those are the two uh, things. So, like, I don't know that Boros Convoke, <laughs> when it nut draws, is going to actually have to stop the Archfiend. I think it, they're just going to be able to kill you if you tap out on turn four and play a 6-6. Six, six. Right, but that's that's just one deck. I guess sure. For a different deck, we could say that because most of these pioneer decks, the tier top tier decks, are always like three moves away from killing you, that you you can interact. We have our favorite one and two mana efficient interaction spells, but you just like can't hold them off forever because they have so many sources of card advantage built in. So it just like becomes necessary to kill them first and. That's something that I've just been in denial about. I just pretend that's not the case. <laughs> just like hope that I will eventually do my thing before they reassemble um, their combo. But I feel like that's why you don't really see decks like Black Green mid range, like really making a much of a dent on the format. I mean, since they printed the new adventure guy, there's at least one Black Green mid range list in every deck dump, if not more. I mean, there's John mid range list, so. Hmm. That's true. Yeah. And that is because they have a new source of card advantage, not because they're finishing the game faster. To the point, I mean, the the three two trample guy is a four or three of in all these lists, and he does not win the game very quickly, but he does grind uh, through resources. Hmm. A, a proper mid range. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. For the grindy matchups, we bring in yep. the, the dread knights for the grindy <laughs> right. matchups. For the grindy matchups, exactly. All right, well, I just thought it was a very interesting framework to keep in mind, and it's something that I'm going to just like be turning over in the back of my head as I'm trying to envision some of these play patterns that we'll be describing as we dig into our deck lists. Uh, speaking of which, we can just dig in right now. We've got about, I don't know, 12, 15, David? We'll just see how far we can get. Yeah, we'll just have to fly through them. All right, so first up is Helping Hand. Helping Hand very unassuming card. It's almost just a, a reprint of Unearth, but it's in white. Color shift it to white. So it's a sorcery for a single white mana. Return target creature with mana value three or less from your graveyard to the battlefield. Tapped. So worse than Unearth on, on two counts. One is that it doesn't have cycling. Two is that it, the creature comes back to tapped, which is actually kind of a bummer for things like Grease Fang trying to crew the vehicle that turn. Or even uh, Storm Herald trying to do the combo that turn. Nevertheless, this is just such an efficient rate that I think as we were talking about it, David, we just like started immediately generating possible homes. And I see that you and I have both sketched up some initial lists. Yeah, so I discussed at that time, I thought Monastery Mentor was actually a great home for this. One of the problems with Monastery Mentor is it dies to red removal, right? Uh, stomp out of red black. A bevy of one red mana spells against Phoenix. And so you don't really have time to like wait till turn four, then play the Monastery Mentor and play your Sleight of Hand. Okay, you got one Monk, but your your tempo is so poor. So what I wanted to pair it with was all the cantripy stuff. So we've got Sleight of Hand and Consider. 
Um, and then just some light, I mean, consider can put it in the graveyard. And then I wanted my creature suite to be something that could mill away Monastery Mentor. I want to put it in play for one mana, which leaves me, in theory, mm. let's say on turn two, two mana up. Um, so we're playing Evangel of Synthesis, which is just a reasonable creature. We've got a lot of other draw effects in the deck. And then Ledger Shredder, obviously Ledger Shredder plus Cantrips. We understand the power of that card. It's very good in Phoenix. It's very good in uh, multiple shells in Modern, although it's, it's fallen off lately. Uh, mainly because of Bowmasters, I'm guessing. Um, I like to have like a fifth target for these kind of things. So those those cards are also fine helping hand targets for what it's worth. You helping hand a Ledger Shredder after they kill it and then cast another spell, you get a loot immediately. I love Rafine in these shells since we're already having to play Esper. I don't feel as bad about the third color. Rafine plus uh, Evangel of Synthesis is great. It's very hard to block. Rafine with a bunch of Monastery Mentor tokens in play is great. Um, and Rafine itself can just be a source of looting uh, to put Monastery Mentor in the graveyard. And then we just have all these one-mana spells. So we have eight one-mana cantrips, two spell pierce, four push, four thoughtseize, one go for the throat, um, and then three treasure crews. And like treasure crews and Monastery Mentor, you know, treasure crews triggers Mentor and pumps it and pumps the tokens and finds, in theory, more spells to cast or more helping hands if they find a way to kill your Mentor uh, in the future. So... So the deck looks sweet. I think part of the reason it looks sweet is because I really like the concept of Evangelist Synthesis. Um, and obviously we hope Helping Hand is going to be a very efficient play. Concerns I have is that when you actually dig in and see like how is this deck actually stopping the opponent from killing you, the interaction is somewhat limited, right? There's just four Fatal Push, four Thoughts Use, two Spell Pierce. Now, Oh, one go for the throat. Okay, so that's, what, 11 cards that interact with the opponent. Granted, you have a good amount of turn in your deck, consider Slate of Hand, Treasure Cruise, and then uh, the creatures you mentioned that loot. So we're going to be drawing plenty of Fatal Pushes, plenty of Thought Seizes. Or will we? I guess that's that's my question. Like, is this actually enough spells? Because we often see Monastery Mentor in our deck that's like all spells and a lot of interaction. Um, this one's like a lot more creature focused and I'm worried that our interaction suite could get overwhelmed before we can kill them. I mean, we have 26 spells in the deck. <laughs> I think most decks typically play like 12, 13, 14 throughout history. Sort of, we've seen a 10 to 15 is the, the range of creature threats. And if you're going to play helping hand, you can't just have monastery mentor as your target. So you have to play some number of creatures. That's why those, all my other creatures loot. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know that I could cut another creature here and like still have a functional list. That's very possible. Um, yeah, I, I think that, I mean, at first glance, it, it looks sweet. I'm just like, it looks too good to be true. Like why has a deck like this not worked in the past? Another reason is, could be that you, you have to be in three colors now. Well, that's the that's the huge problem. It took me forever to work on this freaking mana base, and it's going to be pretty painful. <laughs> so what would happen if you just picked a color? I guess it would have to be black and say, we don't need black. We're just not going to use black. Can we find enough in white and blue? Um, No. <laughs> I mean, you want to talk about Law 11's one man interaction. There is none in these colors. And even the white removal, it's okay. Like, portable hole's okay. It doesn't go to the graveyard, so it's much worse with Treasure Cruise. Okay, so there's no substitute for, for this style of deck. You need Thought Season Push. 
You need Thoughtseize and Push. I love the fact that we have the eluding ability, so we can sort of like assemble our own fable, you know, in matchups where Thoughtseize is bad. That's just what gets looted away by our Shredders and Evangels, and we find more pushes. And when push is bad against control, we loot away our, our pushes and find more Thoughtseizes, etc. Okay. Well, in that case, we'll just throw in a couple mana confluence and call it a day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah the only reason i didn't do it in this one is because i think you're gonna spend all your mana every turn because we're gonna cast so many cantrips so mana confluence is really tough in, in shells like this all right all right so on to a list that you proposed with helping hand what are you looking to bring back so i'm looking to bring back far far less impressive creatures but creatures that i know will be in the graveyard Specifically, uh, Draneth Stinger and Flourishing Fox. Now, this was like a pre-built Ikoria. And it's not even a block constructor because there was no block. It was just like a one-set cycling deck that was pretty good in standard. It was very good in standard. It was very good in standard. Correction, it was very good in standard. It sort of crossed over briefly into Pioneer. David got a sweet 5-0 with it back when we were doing our Wizards of Coast show. Uh, that was actually a very unique take on it because you paired it with Riel the Everwise and you're thinking, okay, if I'm using the cycling mechanic, Riel is just going to like draw me a million cards. I think you're the only person who actually did that because when I looked for other cycling decks in Pioneer, most people were just focusing on more of a classic port. Flourishing Fox, Dranath Stinger, Dranath Healer. Some number of the cards you never actually cast, like <laughs> Footfall Crater, Go for Blood, Jura's Renunciation, Cast Out, etc., like these cards can be cast, but it's, it's quite rare. You just try to cycle through your deck as far as you can. Eventually you will either kill them with a flourishing Fox. You will kill them with Draenei Stinger triggers or possibly you'll power up a giant Zenith flare, uh, which is four mana hits them for the number of cycling cards in your graveyard. So that shell is basically unchanged, right? I don't think there's any new cards that cycle for one that we would consider there. However, we did get two new toys in this set. So I think Helping Hand will actually just by itself improve the deck quite a lot. Um, just being able to bring back the Flourishing Fox or bring back the Draenei Stinger. But what's very, very exciting is you now have the option for a cheaper Riel just in red. I'm talking here about Inti Senestal of the Sun. One in a red legendary human knight. Uh, has two different lines of text. The first one is whenever you attack, you may discard a card, and if you do, you get to put a plus one plus one counter on target attacking creature to give that creature trample until end of turn. Uh, that's okay, I'm probably not as interested in that, but the second line of text is very, very intriguing. It's whenever you discard one or more cards, exile the top card of your library, you may play that card until your next end step. So I saw this and I thought, well, what if this is my two mana Riel that doesn't force me to stretch into blue like you had to do, David. And if I put four Inties in the deck, and I also have four Helping Hands to rebuy the Inti when they inevitably get pushed or stomped or whatever, um, now every time I'm cycling my, my random junk, Inti triggers, I guess I'll card. Yeah, often that card is just going to be a junk cycler that I'm not actually going to cast, but some of the time it'll be a land, some of the time it'll be a Flourishing Fox, and some of the time it'll be a Draenei Stinger. So I'm wondering what happens if I just like refocus my deck around the Inti and Helping Hand core with the cycling creatures in support. Now, if I'm doing that, I want to maximize my chances of actually being able to cast cards off Inti, so I'm focusing more on cheap plays. That's why I, I carved out enough room for just like four copies of Flameblade Adept. 
Uh, I'm not sure if that card is actually correct here. It's, it's just kind of like doing its own thing. Um, like Flameblade Adept, Flourishing Fox, and Inti are this aggro component, which may win a couple games against like Lotus Combo. I think more often I'm just going to cycle, 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 try to get Draenei Stingers in play. They kill it. I helping hand it back. I cycle some more and then eventually just win that way. Yeah, I mean, I love the base shell of what's happening here. Riel is a lot more powerful than Inti, but yes. spreading your mana is really, really tough. I will say I've really disliked that this is not related to this at all, but I've played a bunch of shells with like Seek the Beast, the um the black red uh four three that whenever you do exactly one damage, you like exile a card and can play it until the end of your next turn. Um, it was in Aftermath. Uh, gosh. <laughs> what card is that? It's 4-3 flying. Whenever your opponent takes exactly one damage, it gets a plus one, plus one counter, and you exile the top card of your library and can play it until the end of your next turn. Oh, Obnixilus, Captive Kingpin. Yeah, so that card and Seek the Beast, like... I've just had really bad experiences with them where I've done the thing and, and exiled all these cards and then you can't play them all. So it's way worse than way worse than drawing a card. Um, so I guess I'm not interested in Inti as a as much as a card <clears throat> value engine. I think you've done a good job really pushing the mana curve down to try to make those cards be cards. And I think most of the time, unfortunately, it's not going to be. But I love the aggressive part of this. So I love the Stinger, Fox, Flameblade, Adept, Inti core. Um, and then I think maybe I wouldn't even like bother playing healer, for instance. I'd max out on Zenith Flares and maybe go to the fourth play with fire and just be like more of an aggro deck. Hmm. But, you know, we'd have to play it. It's so it's so hard to know, right? The other thing is like so many of your cards are textless functionally, right? They're just one colorless. Turn this card into a different card. Um, the other thing I would think about in decks like this is I would try to play some number of of ways to kill shieldred uh yes that's a problem <laughs> so so you know like the one red you can discard a card and do five damage that isn't as bad when you have inti and flame blade for instance but i'm just thinking out loud like i, I love the ag- aggressive part of this is i guess what i'm saying i think that's exactly on the right track and i think helping hand is is perfect exactly do you think that you, you need to have a shieldred killer in the main deck or can you just rely on the cyborg i mean you have that's why i'm saying max out zenith flare because it's like all right Shieldred is going to harm you, but it, as long as you get to four mana, you just trade your four mana for their four mana, and you're up a ton of life. Hmm. Because you, so I guess what I'm saying is just Zenith Flare can win the game. It, it can kill Shieldred to let you not lose the game, and so therefore that's why I want to play four. So in order to make room for anything like that, I don't really want to go any lower on the cyclers. I already kind of trimmed slightly below where I saw other decks going on, like how many one mana cyclers i guess that would probably mean cutting the flame blade adepts which i'm fine doing um maybe trimming into also i hear what you're saying like less than half the time i'll get a card off of inti trigger but even hitting lands is still worth something right or is that not not really worth it no i i, I agree that it is i just i've done the thing with the um Obnix list where I like had the O3 in play and I tapped and did a damage and then drew a spell and then untapped it and did another damage. And it's like you have all these three or four cards and you just have to play them all out. And some of them you can't play. And then they just like kill your guy. And you didn't really like accrue all this advantage that you thought you had. So we just have to like monitor that with NT basically. Like, do you always want to play it and have a creature that can attack? If so, then I love having Flourishing Fox and Flame Blade Adept. Those are great bodies mm-hmm. for um 
Inti's like counter to go on. Yeah. So the other thought I was having with Helping Hand and the Draenei Stinger core is that I suspect that it's just like very powerful to always have a creature you want to Helping Hand back that puts itself in the graveyard the way that Draenei Stinger and Flourishing Fox do. And I was wondering if I could treat that as just this inevitable kill package. Maybe remove Inti from the equation, remove the pressure to like be aggro or be low curve. And instead envision that the kill is going to happen much later. Um, that could mean a couple of different things. One, it could mean going back to Riel. And then when you did that, you were able to play different cyclers like Sensor that are a little bit more interactive. Uh, number two, we could think of think of the kill as like something like uh, O'Hare Axonal Deepest Might um, plus Dranith Stinger, where you don't need a, a ton of copies of the god, but if the god ever comes into play at the same time as Stinger, now each cycle does four damage which just is going to kill them. And the Stinger getting that back off helping hand, I feel like that's almost a guaranteed endgame, as long as you just survive that long. And we could similarly consider other creatures. O'Hare obviously is cost four, so that's not great. But there are other cards like the um, the Pyromancer, the two and a red Pyromancer, that, that deals three damage whenever you draw your second card each turn, which some of these cycling decks in the past have used as like a sideboard juke or just like a kind of cheeky main deck option that if it lives, it's so powerful. It's not going to live, but now you have helping hands. So you have this option to like look at the secondary supporting threats that, that go with the cycling package and say, okay, actually, I think that helping hand makes these like a lot more likely to actually do their thing. Yeah, you got a, a long list of cards here, some of which I don't like, some of which I do. I think this is going to require a lot of experimentation. There's so many variables that you kind of just outlined. The one card I really want to throw out is an interesting card here is Voldaren Thrillseeker. Mm. Um, it can come into play, pump, whatever. You could play Phoenix Chick. You could be playing the fox that gets really big. Kill them. It's also a three power creature that naturally goes to the graveyard whenever you want it to. It also, if it pumps something else, is a one damage effect that O'Hare can pump up to four if you want to. So... I, I think that's a card that we should think about. I, it's really impressed me in every deck I've played it in. Thrill Seeker is just a really powerful card. If we want to play it with Riel, again, Riel and the Fox could both be cards that get very high power. Mm. And then all of a sudden we have four mana. We play this, target the Riel or Fox, blow it up. Just just some thoughts. What did you think about uh, Valiant Rescuer? I remember you played four copies main deck in your Jeskai Riel cycling deck. The 3-1 guy that made a 1-1? Yeah, it makes it 1-1 one, one whenever you cycle. The tricky part is that he cycles for 2 instead of 1. Yeah, uh, in the 5-0 time, the deck, the format was much more combo-oriented. So it was an awesome threat that just made a bunch of bodies. When I tried to revisit that deck later, that was the card I found very frustrating. It dies to everything. Um, Stomp is much more prevalent now. Um, the 3-3 three, three, uh Demon in uh, Red Black Sack is is in a lot of places. The 3-1 doesn't actually attack in anything. It's a bad blocker for Mono White. So I, th I think it's actually just not very good right now, is I guess what I would say. Hmm. Well, a die is it gets a helping hand back, you know? <laughs> True. The thing is, like, just making a bunch of 1-1s just doesn't do that much. I guess that's what it comes down to. I'd much rather have go tall than wide. Okay. Noted. All right, so another thing you could be thinking about here is if Inti and Riel are similar cards, right? Like, like I'd swap them out in this shell. 
you could also take that one step further and say, well, what if I want to play Inti and Riel together in the same deck? Um, Inti is more copies of Riel. And David, you've sketched out a list here that is playing both. Not full playsets of both, but it looks like you're going full playset of Riel and then a couple Intis to support. Yeah, I mean, mainly this deck is a Malcolm deck. So Malcolm Alluring Scoundrel, I think, is my favorite card. I don't know in how long. It is the best two-mana printer, two-mana looter they've ever printed. It is a pirate. It is a legend. It does loot. So the looting works with Inti and Riel. The pirate works with Breaches, the eager pillager. <laughs> the looting works with Riel and Inti and Fiery Temper. The legend part works with Combat Research and Mox Amber. Yeah, I'm super excited for this deck. Um, so yeah, we're just playing four Spyglass Siren. Those are probably the cards that would be the first to get cut if I decide that they're bad, but they are extra pirates for breaches. And they are extra bodies that could hold combat research. We're playing four Fiery Impulse, two Spike Field Hazard, two Spell Pierce, two Mox Amber because we have so many legends, four Malcolm, four Sensor, two Inti, one is a Charm, one Rona, four Riel, three Breaches, and then two Fiery Temper. So just super low to the ground. We have the ability to draw a ton of cards. We have the ability to generate a ton of power. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about this deck. Breaches as a reminder, two and a red, three, three, legendary Goblin Pirate. First strike, whenever a pirate you control attacks, choose one that hasn't been chosen this turn. And then there's three modes. Create a treasure. Target creature can't block this turn. Or exit the top card of your library. You may play it this turn. So we're not all in on pirates. Um, I think you're, you're positing that just flashing in Malcolm turn to follow it up with the breaches is still good enough. In that situation, you're probably just going to make a treasure, right? Oh, yeah. So you get to loot and make a treasure. So you're looking for your spell pierce, one mana interaction, or a mox amber. Um, also, when you attack, you make the treasure first. So if you want to loot away a fiery temper, you'll actually have a red up. Oh, that's nice. And then they're putting the squeeze. Like, you have two creatures that are good. Like, are they seriously not going to kill Breaches? They're going to kill the Malcolm? Well, Breaches gets to attack freely. It can always just make a creature not block. And against, like, red-black, it just attacks into everything except for Shielder because it has first strike. So, yeah, I just I just think, like, Malcolm into Riel is incredible. Malcolm into Breaches is incredible. And yeah, I, I just, I'm just super stoked. Malcolm into Inti is incredible. <laughs> I mean, I love the the enthusiasm for these lions. I'm not as convinced that like we have enough support for Riel at all in this deck, or that we have enough interaction. Like we don't we don't have that much removal here, or that many counter spells. Similarly, apart from Malcolm, if Malcolm's not in play, we really don't have that many cards that discard for Riel or for Inti. I mean, we have two Odawara, we have Sakenzin, we have four Sensor, we have Is it Charm, and we have Rona. I don't know how many you want. <laughs> I would just want Riel to like trigger every turn if, if Riel was in play. Well, Riel is going to die. So all we need to do is cycle the first sensor and we are up an incredible amount of cards. I need a helping hand. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, what if we just like, okay, forget Riel, forget Inti, and instead just play more pirates, like staunch crewmate and more interaction. I mean, that just sounds way worse to me. <laughs> why Why are we not playing the best cards in our deck? You can make the pirate deck. I, I thought about it. Like the pre you basically wouldn't play any other card. They've pre-made the pirate deck for you. It's not even going to be good enough for standard. So I don't want to play in Pioneer. 
yeah, it does raise the question, like, where is the extra power coming from? So you're, you're saying that Riel is that extra power. Riel is like the juice that puts this standard deck into Pioneer competitive play. Yeah, Riel's going to be incredible. The card I'm most speculative about is Spyglass Siren, the early returns of people who played on the early release on Arena is that maps are about as bad as we thought they'd be, and that's a little concerning that maybe this isn't even worth it. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So that that would be where you could cut. You could cut some, you could cut all four, you could cut some number of them. I don't know how much more cheap interaction you want to play, but you could always like put another couple of Is It Charms, which is uh, quite a useful card in multiple scenarios. Would you ever feel confident enough to go up to four fiery tempers or the card just betrayed you too many times? Um, the promise three damage isn't that great. I mean, fire impulse already does the three damage. So like this advantage is only if we're specifically looting. Um, it's fine. I I've played more of this card, I think than anybody else in the entire format. So I, I, I think it's way better than the average person does. That's for sure. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I, you'd have to, get rid of the sirens then basically and you just play like an extra rona an extra is it charm i see what you're saying okay well i look forward to your report on malcolm alluring scoundrel your number one card in the set we move on to the next list which once again is featuring a reality otherwise boy we gotta like buy this card, <laughs> this card seems pretty sweet this time you're leading into a slightly different angle you're thinking about Riel plus sensor as the core interaction there, but leaning into more cycling with Shark Typhoon. And this is actually something that you've already played to a couple of great results. I think you 4 one twice, was that? Yeah. So I'm 8-2 with the base shell, which just had four Omen Hawker. And then, like you said, four Bank Buster to turn on the Omen Hawker's ability on turn two. For sensor, Omen Hawker can pay for cycling. Mm -hmm. For Shark Typhoon, uh, that previous deck was playing like multiple Ronas, multiple neutralizes. Then we have two Mirex, which Omen Hawker makes very cheap. And then four Odawara, which is incredible with Riel and incredible with Omen Hawker. Okay, so the new addition here is the Enigma Jewel. It's a legendary artifact for blue, enters the battlefield tapped. It taps for two colorless mana, which you can only spend to activate abilities. So same restriction that Omen Hawker had. Omen Hawker also essentially comes into play tabs, right? Because of summoning sickness. So it's not any slower than Omen Hawker. It's more resilient, we could say. It's much more likely to be in play. So it's, it seems like your idea here, David, is that you found the deck to be just so much more powerful when you have the mana engine of Omen Hawker online. Um, yeah, I, you kept insisting that the deck played out differently if I played Omen Hawker on turn one. Uh, I don't think it's as big of a delta as you do, but I think the ability to um, activate your bank buster on turn two is really important in the mid-range matchups. And so this maximizes those draws. Oh, so you're just happy playing this without any mana engine. You're just like, all right, I'll just be a... Blue I man. won multiple games without playing Omen Hawker on turn one. So, yeah, you just fire impulse, whatever, censor their three drop, play Riel, cycle, draw a bunch of cards. I do like that this pushes our curve down. Like the second neutralize I wanted to cut anyway, the second Rona I wasn't absolutely in love with. The cards that I loved were Shark Typhoon, Riel, Bankbuster, uh, and then the Cycling Lands. And Enigma Jewel plays very well with all of those cards. 
The one thing it doesn't do is cycle sensor mm-hmm. when you tap out for Riel on turn three, which is kind of a bummer, but we're going to let that slide because I think it's going to be good in a bunch of other situations. So you've listed four Omen Hawkers, two Enigma Jewels, and I would kind of expect it to go the other way around. What's your thought process there? Enigma Jewel has the super type legendary. <laughs> well, you, you can craft the extra copies with your first. Enigma yeah, so that, that's the one thing that I do want to focus on. We don't have the ability to craft anything useful, so we are literally just trying to get juice out of the mana ability. And we don't have that many looting effects, right? We just have Rona and two Is It Charms. Um, the other thing is, again, like Cycling Sensor and Cycling Shark Typhoon are very, very useful to do the turn you play Riel. And you can't do that with Enigma Jewel. So if you play Riel, even if they kill it, it's worth it to cycle Shark Typhoon for zero sometimes. Just tap Omen Hawker, draw two is just incredible. You're playing four Odawaras here. How many were in your previous 4-1 versions? Four. Four Odawara is absolutely non-negotiable. So we're playing 27 lands. Mm -hmm. Now that we have Enigma Jewel, it's even better. Um, it's just so good. Uh, Riel and I guess Rona reduce the cost. So with Rona in play and an Omen Hawker or an Enigma Jewel, it's only one mana. That's nuts. Repulse. (laughs) (laughs) Anything. And it's like, it it just gives you outs. Like they resolve Atraxa. Of course you don't want them to resolve Atraxa, but if they do, you just put it back in their hand and you've got a Rona or a Riel in play. You might just have lethal damage for instance. Yeah, I forgot that Riel makes Odawara one cheaper, and then that's conveniently exactly enough for Omen Hawker and Enigma Jewel to do the rest of the job. Yeah, so so yeah, Odawara is incredible in this deck. So Kenzin is is great. I, I just didn't want to play too many more duplicative versions. Mirex lets you beat control very easily. They just can't beat Omen Hawker and or Enigma Jewel, and uh, you can put Wrecked or Bankbuster down before they can get Counter Magic up. Obviously, they can't kill both your Mirixes normally. Like you just, you just win. It's very, very easy to, to be control. Okay. So Omen Hawker seems to be back on the menu with Enigma Jewel. Thinking along those lines, you've revisited our old friend, Chrome host Seed Shark. So once again, I see four Omen Hawkers, two Enigma Jewels, but now we're in a blue white shell. Yeah, so we don't get all the value from cycling. So I moved away from like a sensor type of package. We still want the bank busters because we are going to now play the seed shark. We're going to give it another chance. I wanted to play improvise effects that let us kind of cheat on mana cost. Mm-hmm. So I have four metallic rebukes and two reverse engineers, which means we need uh, other sources of cheap artifacts. So we have three portable holes as our one man removal. We don't get to play good red removal, unfortunately. Two Thraben Inspectors, again, just a cheap source of artifacts. They do uh, make clues, which Enigma Jewel and Omen Hawker can pay for, so that's very efficient. We're playing two Get Lost. We don't know how good this card is. I've heard Croaky say it's terrible. (laughs) Uh, I kind of think it's good. Although, if we think it's good to give ourselves maps, then we can't simultaneously argue it's good to kill their creature and give them two maps. Um, (laughs) So, the maps are actually better than normal in this list because we have Enigma Jewel to crack them easily. We also want extra bodies to absorb those counters. That's partially why we're playing Thraven Inspector. Um, the two maps also help us cast Metallic Rebuke and Reverse Engineer. So let's say you had a Chrome Host Seed Shark in play. You can get lost a creature 
trigger seed shark make two tokens so like get lost is almost free if you want to cast metallic rebuke the same turn for instance uh two sunfalls you need sweepers in your deck because the white removal is so bad a dig through time very good with chromo seed shark again the four shark typhoons that's actually the the chromo seed shark and Bankbuster are the cards that make omen hawker and enigma jewel playable and then we're playing two restless anchorage the two three that makes a map Again, a little better than it normally would be because it makes we have the ability to activate the creature very easily with Omen Hawker and Enigma Jewel, kind of. And then the map is easy to crack uh, after combat. I always love the potential of Metallic Rebuke with Seed Shark. That seems like an interactive piece that holds its own. I don't have a lot of evidence to back that up in the current Pioneer, but it just feels like that should be good enough. Agree. That's uh, that's the thought process here. I mean, we're playing a lot of cards that are cheap artifacts, so in theory, <laughs> we should be able to get cheap rebukes off semi-frequently. That again makes me wonder if I want more copies of Enigma Jewel, because like turn one jewel taps, whatever. But turn two, I'm now I'm now representing either Metallic Rebuke, convoking off the jewel, or cycle the Shark Typhoon for a two-two shark draw card. Which is not amazing, but it's something. Well, two mana, make a 2-2 two, two draw card is uncounterable is pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. So the fact that Rebuke makes Jewel a little bit better and also makes Shark better. Maybe like white's the color we don't need. Like you could just do all that in entirely in blue. So I think that there's a version of this that doesn't actually dip into white. But I'm not quite sure how that would look. Well, you have to kill their creatures. You have to kill their creatures. <laughs> I really want to emphasize that. You could play the new one, the Black Trial of Ambition, and then you could play, instead of Get Lost, you could play Blood Fountain, for example. What is that blade called? It's, like a, it's, a, it's from the set. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Well, anyway, there's options. So there's very little white cards in this deck. There's, there's only like eight white cards here. Yeah, true. I mean, your sideboard cards are a lot better in white. Hmm. Yeah, yeah black, black is better removal, but if you're going to play a bunch of good removal, then I wouldn't play Chromo Seed Shark. i just play a blue-black control shell. Hmm. All right. Well, excited to dig in more to Enigma Jewel and Omen Hawker in the coming weeks. Next up, brewing a little bit with Souls of the Lost and Pioneer. Souls of the Lost, the, the new big get, quote-unquote, for Crabbind in modern. It's a one and a black. Creature Spirit, as an additional cost to cast Souls of the Lost, you have to discard a card or sacrifice a permanent. It has Fathomless Descent, which means that its power is equal to the number of permanent cards in your graveyard. Its toughness is equal to that number plus one. Yeah, so people are pretty excited about this in Modern because of Fetchlands. That makes sense to me. I already had a shell that was playing Citrus Supplier, Fiend Artisan, Tyvar. Uh, Priest of the Forgotten Gods. And so with that shell, I was using Sidisi and I was making a ton of zombies. And then I was sacking the zombies to Priest of Forgotten Gods. And Tyvar was triggering Sidisi every turn. So I got rid of the blue and like trimmed the mana cost way down. So now we are just playing the black interaction spells, Push and Thoughtseize. C-Node Scout and Citrus Supplier are our one-drops, our like quote-unquote value one-drops that we don't mind sacrificing. Souls of the Lost sacking Citrus Supplier is a big beater, but Fiend Artisan and Tyvar can put Souls of the Lost in play without having to sacrifice anything. So now we just have this like tutorable Tarmogoyf-like figure that doesn't really cost us very much. 
And because we're playing Fiend Artisan with Tyvar, we also have a bunch of tutor targets. So we have a one of Shieldred, we have a one of Armored Scrap Gorger, that is a graveyard hate piece. We have one of Moss with Dread Knight, which is a great sack fodder for Priests of Forgotten Gods or Souls of the Lost. Sack, Stitcher Supplier, go get the Myco Tyrant. Oh, seems super sweet. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was pretty uh, stoked on the deck before, and now we've gotten rid of the third color, which I always love to do. And our cards are really cheap. The creatures, in theory, should be really powerful. We're really, really weak to graveyard hate, but, you know, we can play sideboard cards. And then because we have this tutor package with Fiend and I've just got a bunch of cards here that you could play in your sideboard that are very good uh, hate pieces against certain decks. So worth worth noting. The line you were describing is you have Fiend in play, Sex, Stitcher Supplier, that's a four-mana play to get your Micro Tyrant. The Micro Tyrant sees all of the cards that Stitcher Supplier mills as part of us. And Stitcher Supplier itself. Okay, so you're going to get uh that starts as a one one but by your end step it'll be like a five five with five additional tokens yeah can can be yes exactly and then we, again we just have natural ways to put cards in the graveyard because we are playing tyvar and like c note scout also so it's not like michael tyrant just does that one thing if they don't kill it we can very easily add extra counters to it so what you were saying about graveyard hate eight of your two drops shrink tremendously if your graveyard is shut down so that's souls yes. of the lost fiendars and just become one ones or zero ones but they're not dead so at least they still do something exactly they don't die that's the that's the really big thing uh souls of the lost doesn't do much but it, i guess that's fodder for your priest of the forgotten gods um, or, or your fiend artisan which again doesn't die so fiend artisan okay they've got whatever in play like sacrifice your souls of the lost find your canker bloom to destroy their you know, whatever, rest in peace. You mentioned briefly that in the early access streamer event, maps were not performing very well. And I wanted to just ask you a little bit more about that because you're still playing Cenote Scout four copies here. And that, that to me feels like the most optional card. I feel like if you're putting that in, it's because you feel like exploring is good. And are, are we sure about that? Like, was it the explorer was a problem? Or was it the fact that like, you have to pay mana and have targets for the maps? That's why the maps were bad. Yeah, the, the map is the sorcery speed, have to have a target, cost some mana, uh, all those things. So you know what Scout is literally just a 1-1 that draws a card, which is a great card to sacrifice to Fiend Artist and a Priest, or it is a 1-mana put the right card in our graveyard, um, which is also very good. So I, there may be a better 1-drop. I thought about playing, for instance, a 1-of a uh, Deathrite Shaman was in my other shell. Hmm. but I was a lot happier exiling lands that I was looting away. I don't really want to do that in my Souls to the Lost deck anymore. And they aren't going to have lands in their graveyard. Well, what about just land war elves? We could accelerate a little bit more if we had that. Yeah, but all of our threats are two mana. I, I don't think you want to play land war elf if you're capping out at two mana uh, like we are. Okay. And then you're still playing four Souls of the Lost, but when you when you draw them, there's... Not really a way around two for one yourself. Uh, are you concerned about that? We'll just have to see how it plays out. I guess my thought process is, and against half the decks, you just discard the push or thought seeds you don't need. The other times, you just sacrifice your C note scout, which drew us a card, or our citrus supplier. Um, we do have fodder for it. You know, we have dread knight. We have a tenacious underdog. We have a Myco tyrant token. Mm. 
But yeah, we'll have to see. Maybe it is too many. It just felt like to me, in a list like this, this is what I want to try. So like we just maximize our number of times where we like sit your supplier into Souls of the Lost. Like we can just kind of like steal games against like Lotus or whatever that way, right? Where we just have like a seven power two mana creature and like the clock is just crazy. Okay. Shifting gears entirely. We go to our old friend, Brass's Tunnel Grinder. And of course, Takutlan, the Searing Rift. Well, David, I got to hand it to you. You actually followed through. I, I thought that I'd talk you out of this, but no, you've built the deck. It's here. It's in front of us. And it's possibly very good. I'm still quite skeptical, but talk us through how exactly are we taking advantage of Brass's Tunnel Grinder? As a reminder... Okay, so, yeah, just let's remind you <laughs> what the card does. <laughs> it's two and a red legendary artifact. When Brass's Tunnel Grinder enters the battlefield, discard any number of cards, then draw that many cards plus one. Essentially, that's Velikid Awakening, but... Sorcery speed. <laughs> <laughs> on a legendary artifact... At the beginning of your end step, if you descended this turn, you put a boar counter on the tunnel grinder. And then if there are three or more boar counters on it, you remove the counters, transform it into a legendary land, a legendary cave, Tekutlan, the Searing Rift, taps for a red. Whenever you cast a permanent spell using mana produced by Tekutlan, the Searing Rift, discover X where X is that spell's mana value. Yeah, so it kind of asks you to do a simple thing, and it seems at first like the classic like red builder on which they typically don't make good enough, and maybe this isn't good enough, and we'll learn a, a series of harsh lessons. But you play it the turn it comes into play, you probably discard one card and draw two, right? And the card you put in your graveyard is a permanent, so you get your first board counter. And then if you just have a couple more permanents go, you get this really powerful land. This is the most powerful cave. It gives you the ability to functionally draw a card, and it gives you the mana back. So if you play a one mana spell a one mana permanent, you draw a card and get a mana. That, I mean, if you play a five mana spell, you at least get a mana's worth, plus you draw a card. So it just turns this land into just an incredible land. There, there's very few better lands printed in the history of magic. Okay, but we have to flip this thing and we don't want to do it as slow as what they're proposing because that would just take too long. We'd be too far behind. And as Dan points out or point out during the spoiler season, we don't love sorcery speed, <laughs> Valakut Awakening. That's not uh, that's not what we came to to do. So, to turbocharge our Tunnel Grinder, we're playing a deck that's almost all permanents. And what we want to do is play Tunnel Grinder, put our first permanent in the graveyard. Okay, one counter. On our turn four, we want to play Canker Bloom, sack it, proliferate. Canker Bloom goes to the graveyard. So we put a second counter with our proliferate on our grinder. And then at the end of the turn, it saw Canker Bloom go to the graveyard. It flips. So now we have an untapped land and an untapped Tekutlan, the Searing Rift. If we have any instant speed permanents that we want to cast, they will get to benefit from it. And then for the rest of the game, we get to, in theory, use the sweet, sweet benefits of this Searing Rift. So I've got a bunch of instants loaded into permanent so we've got like bone crusher giant so if we let's say play a kiora with this in play we can discover into the bone crusher giant we can pick which half to cast so we can cast the shock to be able to cast the bone crusher giant in the future to trigger the rift again um all of our top end is permanent so we're playing glory bringer chandra Kiora is incredible because it's both a permanent. It also can untap the land, so you get to use it multiple times a turn. 
We're playing four Fanatic of Firebrand. It is a permanent, so it triggers Discover once we've got this flipped. It also goes to the graveyard. So if we play the Grinder, we don't draw our Canker Bloom. We can still get it to flip if we play <laughs> Contagious Vorak. Oh my god. <laughs> so Contagious Vorak is two and a green for a 3-3. Three, three. When it enters the battlefield, look at your top four cards. You may put a land from those into your hand. But if you don't do that, you can proliferate. So if we proliferate with Vorak and then either play a Fanatical Firebrand or a Fable Passage, we can again uh, turn four flip our thing. We're playing two Omen of the Forge because our best curve is going to have two mana up. So we want to have an instant to be able to cast at that time. So just like think of Omen of the Forge with this flipped. Now it's a two damage spell. We get to see what we flip first. So we can change our target if we like because it happens on cast. And so like you could Omen of the Forge into a Strangle. That kills Shieldred. But you don't have to target the Shieldred with the Omen. <laughs> you can wait and see what you flip with it. So that's the deck. We uh, Like our normal, we can just win with Kiora Glorybringer. That's fine. It's a nice fine value play. But we can just like Kiora untap Tekutlan over and over again and just generate like insane amounts of value. This deck is insane. <laughs> this is just <laughs> like, all right, the Tunnel Grinder, you've already gone far, far away from what any other deck is trying to do. Like no other deck is trying to go three mana, sorcery speed, discard one, draw two, pass. <laughs> like this is a, a shockingly bad play. But in order to make that slightly less bad, we're playing... Fanatical Firebrand, Kinker Blooms, and of course, Contagious Vorak. <laughs> I was looking at this screenshot you posted, and I'm like, well, the set must, must not be online yet. I wonder what card that's actually <laughs> supposed to be. And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. It's, it's actually a Contagious Vorak. A solid draft performer. You know, it proliferates. But it doesn't even trigger Descend. Like, that's, that's the bummer of it. This is very hard to Descend. Like, you Descend the turn you cast the Tunnel Grinder, but you got to Descend two more times. Like, even with the Firebrands, is that enough? We are going to find out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you got the Fabled Passages, so that's something. I guess Channeling Boseju counts. Like, do you want the, the Gold Hound? Just the one drop that is a treasure? Here's the problem with all these cards, though. You could also play different, <laughs> different, different cards that proliferate. They all become cards you can't hit once your Tunnel Grinder's flipped. And so... If you play too many of those cards, the flip tunnel grinder isn't as good. Yes. <laughs> Go on. It's, it's a problem. It's definitely a problem. So yeah, this is what I'd start out with. I have a one virtue of courage in here. I don't want that. I, I just play the fourth glory bringer. Um, but yeah, so basically we're just like removal, removal into our cards. So we're not too far behind. That's why we're playing so much cheap removal. And then once it's there, we can basically discard as much of our hand as we want to go find quote unquote the combo, right? We, do, we don't have to keep any cards in our hand. We can look as many cards as we want. Um, so the thing, the theory is that the Brassus Tunnel Grinder helps you find, you can discard every card, for instance, that doesn't proliferate or, or trigger um, Descend. And normally Waste Knot would be a nightmare here, but we get to main deck for Canker Bloom. <laughs> We got all the angles covered here. <laughs> we got all the angles covered. <laughs> the tunnel grinder waste not metagame. I'd also just like to point out, you can just play removal, removal, Kiora, untap a land, removal. Next turn, play Glorybringer, draw a card. Like, you can just win a game without doing any tunnel grinder or anything. So, that's where I think you're, you're most likely to get your wins, but that's usually involves land or elf. 
it's pretty rare to just like play turn three here or turn four Glorybringer and win. But okay, so we don't have room for Llanowar Elf, so that's why I don't know. <laughs> we don't want we don't want to discover into Llanowar Elf. That's the key. <sighs> okay. Okay. All right. All right. Like, also, discover does not worry about timing restrictions as well. So like you can. Omen of the Forge, and then you get to, you know, if you hit a strangle, you just get to kill their um, Grease Fang, just as an example. Yeah, very true. Very true. When you're Kiora untapping Tekutlan multiple times a turn, just, it doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we could, we could win the game, or hear me out. Yeah, I'm like the guy, the Uno guy with 40 cards in hand. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, uh, moving on to uh, Spelunking. Spelunking is two and a green enchantment. When Spelunking enters the battlefield, draw a card. Then you may put a land card from your hand onto the battlefield. We call that a growth spiral. But if you put a cave on the battlefield this way, you gain four life. Additionally, Spelunking says lands you control enter the battlefield untapped. Some people are just throwing this in their amulet decks in modern. I don't know if that's just a meme or not, but we're not doing that. I had posited that the cave deck would involve spelunking. You are not interested in the caves, right? You just want more growth spirals. Yeah, so some people are playing a like Teferi Lotus Field list, and they've they play the the crappy one three guy who's just a terrible card. Like every time you draw it or play it, you just become a worse person. Not having to play that anymore because we have growth spiral and spelunking means that we get to play up the beanstalk. So, we are playing eight one-mana modal spells, four March of Otherworldly Light, four Syncopate. So we can still kill one drops on turn two or counter spells early in the game. But in the late game, we trigger Beanstalk. We just pay a bunch of mana. The other cool thing that Spelunking does is if you play Spelunking, you get to play a land from your hand. So you can play Lotus Field. It comes into play untapped. And then you mm. can target itself with discontinuity because you get the three mana. Oh, that's nice. It, it costs two on your turn. Um... So let's say you go up the Beanstalk, turn two, turn three, Spelunking, play Lotus Field, discontinuity, target your land, draw a card from the discontinuity. So everything has replaced itself, the up the Beanpole, the Spelunking, and the discontinuity. <laughs> okay, that's nuts. <laughs> and and you uh, start the next turn with seven mana at least. And then because Spelunking lets you play lands untapped, you can play the full suite, which is the most important part of Spar's headquarters, the Bant Triome. So your mana is actually great. It's very easy for you to grow spiral on turn two. The problem before was you, it sucked to just splash green for grow spiral. That fixes everything. Um, and then, yeah, then you just do the Teferi thing. Teferi, untap, Lotus Fields, whatever. You have to kill them eventually. You can just kill them with Teferi if you want. We have a one of Hullbreaker Horror, just to really snatch a soul out of them. You can do it on turn four for a reasonable amount of the time with Splunking. Uh, a couple Shark Typhoons. We have a one of Sunken Citadel. We can gain life. Dan's excited about that. Uh, a one of Thespian Stage, which is good with Citadel, and a one of Mirex, which is just a very powerful card and is good with Citadel. You're playing uh, Sunken Citadel instead of the Echoing Deeps, the one that Vesuvas a land out of your graveyard. Yeah, I'm not expecting Lotus Field to be in the graveyard, and you need to be countering, uh, copying something good um, for it to be worthwhile. I think. Okay. You could play another Echoing Deeps. Again, your mana gets worse, so you have to decide how much worse you want it to be. But it is worthwhile to think of Sunkening Deeps if they blow up your Murex, but like, how often is that going to happen? I don't, I don't know. 
Right. I guess the Sunken Citadel is technically a mana fixer where Echoing Deeps is not. Right? So yeah, it's like exactly. a tapped land making the color of your choice. Or untapped with Spelunking. Or untapped with Spelunking. So the mana core is a really exciting part of this deck. Spelunking plus Lotus Field, even without my beloved caves, <laughs> it's just super promising. The The discontinuity line is like icing on the cake. If you ever pull that off, turn three Spelunking, play untapped Lotus Field, immediately discontinuity your Lotus Field. That's just genius. The other line that I was, I think we kind of undersold it during our, our set review is that you know, Spelunking, just play it on turn three, grow spiral. Then turn four, you play your Lotus Field as your fifth land. You still have to sacrifice two lands, but you have like seven mana on turn four. And that's actually more than was ever possible before. Like even the Blood Sun lines couldn't do that. Even like turn three, Blood Sun, turn four, Lotus Field was only six mana. I'm just wondering if we should like play more seven drops. I don't know if Holbreaker Horror is actually the right card for that because it doesn't have like an ETB. I was thinking, like, you just put a Traxa in or a Titan Vigetry or something like that. Just be like, you know what? Screw it. Like, I can I can play a 7-drop straight up with just Blunking and Lotus Field on turn 4. Yeah, I mean, I think you'd, you'd want to rebuild a deck. You wouldn't want to play um, the control shell around it. it. It might be possible that's the way to go. The one concern I have is that only works if Lotus Field is specifically, specifically your fifth land. Um, Mm -hmm. so if it's any other land in that sequence, then it doesn't work. So you end up having to play a ton of lands. So you want your seven drop to draw. So I think it has to be a Traxa, not, not the, um, not the Titan of industry. Okay. And then you just need other ways to play it. Right. So, um, you'd have to figure out what that shell would be, but yeah, I I think that's worth thinking about. Like an early Traxa is very good and not having to play like transmogrify or whatever is also really attractive. But I don't think you'd want to play like Teferi in that shell. Like you're just you're trying to do the Atraxa thing. So just like maybe you play like Considers and things like that to to help you find your Atraxa. Hmm. So for the control shell, you mentioned that some people are already trying this with Teferi and Lotus Field. Are are they playing Syncopate and March of Otherworldly Light? Because I'm kind of surprised to see four copies of each of those as your interactive elements. They're playing. I don't know because I'm not playing against them. They're they're playing some type of counter spells and they're playing some number of March of Otherworldly Lights. It might be the full four. I don't know. Um, but their 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 decks are terrible, so I don't want to do what they're doing. And I do want to trigger up the Beanstalk. Okay, so that's why they're there. So Syncopate yes. is potentially a card that triggers up the Beanstalk. Yes. Your Pioneer Logic Knot or something like that. Yeah, no, that, but it is. It's good on turn two and it's good on turn six now because we have so much mana with the multiple Lotus Fields and, and Teferi. Like you play Teferi and you have six mana now. So like you counter anything. It's functionally a hard counter that draws a card. It's like a dismiss. That also triggers Shark Typhoon if you want to get really advanced. <laughs> I'm also very excited for once you have the Lotus Field engine up and running, just discontinuity on their upkeep with a mean slot yeah. in play. It's just like, all right. Right. I'll go ahead and take this turn. Yeah, so so the discontinuity with Teferi, right, that's the only way that the blue-white versions can win. But mm-hmm. because we have up the Beanstalk, we can do it without Teferi, and it still is a time walk that draws a card. So we just have a lot more angles because we get to play Beanstalk because we don't have to play the garbage 1-3, which, again, gives all these removal decks, all these decks have removal. Mm. You give them something to do with their card, like Fatal Push has a target now. Okay, this, this actually looks super sweet. I'm impressed. 
And it has one cave, so I'll allow this. Yeah, exactly. It was exactly one cave. <laughs> in case we want four life. <laughs> All right. Uh, so this is a clever use of spelunking and uh, an improvement, I hope, to this Lotus Field suite of interaction that people have been messing with for the last couple of years. Let's go to something much simpler. Much, much simpler. Talking about O'Hare Axonil, Deepest Might. Two red red legendary creature god, 4-4 trample. If a red source you control would deal an amount of non-combat damage less than O'Hare Axonil's power to an opponent, that source deals damage instead equal to O'Hare Axonil's power. Okay, so you ping them for one, instead it becomes a ping for four if O'Hare is in play. That's an insane power up to any miscellaneous ping effect of which there are many. So the question is, like, which, which ones do we want to play and what does the actual shell look like? And you've got a list here that is just absolutely chock full of little one damage effects that suddenly become four damage effects. Yeah, so the main thing I want to emphasize is I've always wondered if Mono Red should be playing for Spike Field Hazard anyway. This card's just like so good. I've, I'm like the biggest Spike Field Hazard. Since the card was printed, it's way, way better than the Mythic Rare MDFC. It's not even close. And people like in Standard didn't get it because you know, Standard players don't ever think about magic. O'Hare gives us the excuse to try it. Like, let's play for Spike Field Hazard. Yes, that sounds so awesome. Like, you just have all these ways to kill Mana Elf early. And then late game, you just have this land slot that does four damage to your opponent for kumano faces kazakhan incredible card with o'hare in play incredible card before o'hare comes into play so let's say it's turn three and you play it mm. you play o'hare it gets up extra plus one plus one so now all your effects do five that's incredible it also makes a body fine play with fire already a playable card uh, for light up the stage, we have all these one damage pings. That's good. And the festivities is good against a bunch of the uh, like red, white convoke shells that are seeing a ton of play. Now we kind of have an excuse to play this because the card's already good. Eidolon of the Great Rebel, super powerful against certain matchups. Now very good with O'Hare. Uh, does four damage each time. Roiling Vortex is a card that does damage to them in their upkeep after O'Hare is in play. So it's like cost no mana right they take four in their upkeep oh well thermal alchemist is a card that does damage the turn o'hare can come into play it also is like very good at triggering our like light up the stages and stuff but you could like o'hare tap thermal alchemist do four damage to them then on your next turn like ping them with alchemist cast light up the stage untap thermal alchemist i mean that just does you know that's eight or 12 or whatever Bonecrusher Giant, just a super powerful card. Again, the stomp is very good at killing early creatures. and the late game, it turns into a two damage, excuse me, two mana, four damage to them. The trigger from Bonecrusher also sees O'Hare's power. If that comes up, if they have to target it with removal, I don't know why they aren't killing O'Hare, but you know, whatever. They've got a three damage spell or something. And then Chandra, great with light up the stage. Her plus makes a mana. So we hopefully are always going to cast O'Hare on four. She also is a card advantage engine because we're playing four spike field hazard. Our deck is full of red cards. Um, and then obviously doing a damage or doing four damage to them with Chandra with O'Hare in play and then making a red mana to do cast another spike field hazard or something is, is, is uh, quite powerful. Worth noting that O'Hare has additional text. So if they do kill O'Hare... He comes back tapped as a land, the Temple of Power, which taps for a red, or two and a red tap, transform the Temple of Power back to a Heraxoneal. You can do that if red sources you can you control dealt four or more non-combat damage this turn, which shouldn't be too hard given, well, it should be doable at least, 
uh, given that you stack your deck with this effect. Yeah, and remember that Den of the Bugbear is red. Oh, so that that effect is... Or is it non-combat? Uh, no, no, it's any any red source, although we, we probably wouldn't have, have enough mana for all that. Have that much mana, yeah, true. Okay, so questions are, let's assume that we actually draw the O'Hara and play it on turn four. That turn, we're most likely not dealing any extra damage. Maybe we're dealing four if we have a Chandra in play, Chandra dress the kill, or if the Roiling Vortex is already in play. But the next turn, so let's say we untap with O'Hara, do you think we kill them that turn? Or do you think that it's going to take several turns of this? Um, uh, I mean, it's also a 4-4 trample creature. I, I think it's either you will kill them or they'll be so hurt that they will, the game will functionally be over. Mm. Like, this is really good, for instance, against Mono Green, which cannot kill O'Hare. So we have all these cards that kill their mana ramp. You know, they've got a Kiora or something in play. We play O'Hare. They play the 5-6 in ramp. Like, they, we just have, like, a clear runway. Whatever we were able to play, and now it's, like, go time. We just try to do as much damage to them as we can. And even still, they they cast their 6-mana sorcery. Like, that normally sets them up in an unstoppable position, but because we're just going face, we we aren't attacking through the 4-4 the four, four, uh, anythings. We aren't attacking through Karn. We're just doming them. I wonder if you want like fanatical firebrands in here, just like another way. Yeah, very, very possibly. Um, there, it's good with Kazakhan, uh, Kumano from Kazakhan. So you could cut the end of festivities. Is the one thought? Maybe you don't want thermal alchemist at all. Maybe you just want to cut the two end, end the festivities, cut the two thermal alchemists, and play the the four of those guys. Yeah, it's interesting. So there's so many red cards that just like have this little one damage clause tacked on. They're, they're mostly sideboard cards. So you have a, a bunch of cards that David listed in his main deck that typically are only in the sideboard, like End of Festivities, Rolling Vortex. Um, then you go to the sideboard, you know, Rampaging Ferocidon. Maybe that's just like a very good card, right? O'Hare is one-sided, right? So it, uh, they're taking four, you're not. <laughs> yeah, it started in my main board, but I, I just... I, I don't think it's that good. Uh, I want something that's going to damage people that don't play a lot of creatures. So I, I prefer Roiling, Roiling Vortex to Rampaging Ferocidon, I think. Okay. And you're not interested in going the route of like Cavalcade of Calamity and just try to kill them immediately the turn you play O'Hare? I mean, you could. I just... This deck is very functional without O'Hare. You just can do the Eidolon thing. I see. Like Eidolon, Chandra's generating value, Eidolon's putting pressure on them, we just okay. have all this burn. True. You know, Ramnap Ruins is not increased by O'Hare, but again, we're just a deck that's doing a bunch of damage. Like, Okay. Yeah, looks very nice. All right, that is the Red God, O'Hare Axonil Deepest Might. Next up, oh, this is a David favorite. It's Corpses of the Lost. Corpses of the Lost. What a bizarre card two and a black enchantment skeletons you control get plus one plus one have haste when corpses of the lost enters the battlefield create a two two black skeleton pirate token so it's a three two haste and then at the beginning of your end step if you descend this turn you may pay one life if you do return corpses of the lost to its owner's hand so there's no native way within the enchantment to make that happen, but you just like happen to descend during your turn, you get the option to pick up your corpse a little lost and make another skeleton in the future. Bizarre, bizarre little card. Are there any skeletons? 
no, not really. But just despite that, you found a very functional, actually very cool looking deck for, for this. Yeah, so the best, second best skeleton I found was Gutter Bones, which we, which we are playing just for curve considerations. We're, we're, I wanted 16 one drops. So we're four push, four Thoughtseize. Okay, now what are we going to play? Gutter Bones is a card that does get pumped. It comes into play tapped, so yes. in the future <laughs> turns, it's frustrating. But at least if you already have it down, okay, I play Gutter Bones on turn two. I, you know, Fatal Push their Elf on turn, or Gutter Bones on turn one, push on turn two, and then Corpse. I at least get to attack as a three power creature. It's not nothing. Um, and also, we are going to play Blossoming Tortoise, which triggers corpses of the loss each turn, helps us find Mutavolt, the actual best skeleton in the format, um, and in theory, can put extra gutter bones in the graveyard, so we actually have like a use for all the lands that we're going to have in play. Um, the other thing I was worried about is, okay, what if we don't draw a Blossoming Tortoise, or they, whatever, the end of Blossoming Tortoise? Do we have other ways that are reasonable, that are on plan? <laughs> to generate um, Descend. We don't have that many. So we are playing Takanuma and Boseju. We're playing Two Fable Passage, which is a fine card with Tortoise. Again, I really like bend the mana to get... <laughs> we don't even have that many targets for Fable Passage, but we need to play it. Uh, and then I found Slaughter uh, Horn, which is actually like a pretty sweet card, I think. Oh, God. So Slaughter Horn is two and a green for a 3-2. But as a blood rush, so you discard it for a green and give a creature plus three, plus two. So what this does is, in theory, it can make your skeleton win a fight with something. Or, or and, it triggers Corpses of the Lost. So it buys back Corpses of the Lost while, it basically like a lightning bolt that buys back uh, Corpses of the Lost. We're also playing C-Note Scout. Just the, one of the best one drops in the format. It also can put cards in the graveyard um, to trigger our uh, Corpses of the Lost. Our graveyard... Value is Gutter Bones, possibly Tenacious Underdog as a card. Unfortunately, it never triggers corpses because it gets sacked at end step, and that's when corpses is checking. One Bone Dragon, which is a skeleton, 5-4 flying. Uh, you can exile eight cards and put it in your graveyard at instance, put it in play out of your graveyard at instant speed. And then a one of Demonic Embrace, cool way to like send one of your skeletons or your tortoise to the sky out of your graveyard. Again, it requires a discard if it's in your um, graveyard to your hand, you can trigger uh, the corpses of the lost in that way. So I never had any desire to make a skeletons deck for tribal or EDH or anything, but now that this card is printed and I've actually been looking through the skeletons, I'm enraged that they gave this haste bonus to a tribe that almost entirely comes into play tapped. Gutter bones coming into play tapped is maddening. Bone dragon should be so sweet with tortoise like milling you. And yet it comes back tapped. Like it comes back tapped from the graveyard. Not if you cast it from hand, it's untapped. But like, come on, like what the hell? <laughs> All the skeletons come to play tapped. That's such a bummer. So you're digging deep. Uh, I gotta, again, give a tip of the cap. We're digging deep for hits like Slaughterhorn, <laughs> Gutter Bones. I just wonder what happens if you just replace the Cenote Scout and the Gutter Bones with just Lanor Elves. Like, I just feel like that would be better than trying to make it happen with. Yeah, so the main problem there is we don't have enough untapped green. Hmm. Okay. So, like, playing Llanowar Elves and Fatal Push Thoughtseize is really hard because you have to have a ton of card advantage um, to deal with the fact that you have these low-impact cards. Maybe you could replace, like, one of them? Ah, you could try it. Yeah, I mean, I guess if, if you're thinking corpses has to 
be and play a bunch of turns and there's yeah i guess to me like this deck is i'm i'm favoring like a more interactive like much more of a beatdown plan and the like elf into gutter into corpses loss like corpses loss is not a great three drop to ramp into because it doesn't put that much of a clock on our opponent okay it's more of like an inevitability kind of a card mm-hmm. but yeah maybe i'm maybe i'm thinking about it wrong maybe it's worth it to try it's it's at least worth thinking about. Maybe you don't even play that much removal anymore, and you're just more of like a all permanent type of a thing. Were any of the green changelings worth considering, like masked vandal or um, realm realm walker? So realm walker becomes a skeleton. That's good. We don't. Ha- well, you're proposing cutting the other skeletons, but it won't see a lot of skeletons in the deck, so that's not great. The uh, Disenchant card you just described is interesting. Maybe that's better than Canker Bloom. Although, again, Canker Bloom generates Descend on its own, uh, which is pretty important. <laughs> just going through the skeletons again, like they're all tapped. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 yeah, the the skeleton thing is the problem. So that's that's why we're playing Tortoise. It both triggers corpses of the loss and finds the best skeleton because Tortoise making Mutavolt a three three skeleton um, that corpses the loss pumps is actually like really threatening right like that's like a really really major threat it dodges sweepers um flame skull where you just nice red red that's a very good card to bring back with corpses yeah so that that'd be a different version so but again you, you could you'd probably be able to play like blood tithe as a card that can naturally go to the graveyard but the blood doesn't trigger it um fable is a card that can discard uh the grinder we just talked about is a card that can put cards in your graveyard, but those are all three, which is unfortunate. All right. We eagerly await the printing of more skeletons that do not come into play tapped. <laughs> this is a promising show. I mean, corpses, tortoise, mutable. That, I'm excited for that. Beyond that, I'm not so sure. Uh, moving on. So one of the four drops that I really liked was this very simple, smooth brain card, Blood Letter of Aklazots. One black, black, black. So that's three black and one for a two, four flying vampire demon. If an opponent would lose life during your turn, they lose twice that much life instead. So it kind of attacks for four by itself. It doubles up everything else that would cause either life loss or damage because damage does cause loss of life. It's got interesting creature types. So you could just say, hmm, I'll put this in a vampire deck and see what happens. Uh, it's got interesting casting costs. You can put this in a mono black devotion deck. It's even a demon if you still have dreams of Kalia or some other demon deck. <laughs> My Kalia dreams have been beaten out of me. <laughs> fair, fair. We're going to start with vampires because that's um, a deck that used to be tier one, then tier two, and now tier three and a half. The shell is sort of there, and we. We get not only Bloodletter, we also get Queen's Bay Paladin, three black, 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 for a 5-4 Vampire Knight. When it ETBs or attacks, so this is a Titan Clause, it reanimates a vampire from your graveyard with a finality counter. And then you lose life equal to its mana value. So maybe a little bit tricky to set up. Uh, you, you do lose a lot of life, but this is a super powerful trigger, I think. So what happens if you take these two new vampires and put them into a, a vampire deck? Well, you get something like what David has proposed for us here, which looks to be mono black. I see that you're going with a full playset of Bloodletter, and it looks like a 3-2 split in favor of three Champion of Dusk, two Queen's Bay Paladin. And then the rest of this deck is fairly 
proven vampires cards. So I see Soren, I see the Dusk Legion, Zealot. I don't know about proven. They are cards that have the vampire text on them and are reasonably empowered for the curve spot they're in. Well, I mean, okay, so vampires has not been seen in a while, but when it was good, it looked like this, right? Yeah, I think people were playing black-white vampires a lot to play the 4-4 guy. When he dies, he comes back into play like as an enchantment that makes a 1-1 vampire for three turns, and then he comes back into play. Yeah, Edgar. Yeah. The Charmed Groom. Um, yeah, so I like the idea of mono-black, especially because of the Bloodletter of Alcatraz's casting cost is very restrictive. We get to play four Mutavaults. We still are meeting Frank Carson's requirement of 20 black sources. For our um, one color, color, color <laughs> spell. It's a reasonable card to put in play with Soren that also we can cast without Soren. So I was excited about that. I um, Dom Harvey was always very critical of Champion of Dusk. Hmm. Uh, he thought that uh, these vampire decks were misbuilt. This is back when Vampires was kind of a good deck. He built a list that had none of them or... I can't remember the details of it. I just remember, like, I, Dom Harvey's someone I really respect. I, I love how he thinks about magic. And he was very critical of Champion of the Dust. So I was excited to get to cut some number of them. I still have three in. I, it always felt good when it was played against me. But, uh, you know, Dom Harvey's on the next level. I'm not here to argue with him. Uh, I was excited to get to play two of these Queen's Bay Paladins. In theory, they have to kill our Bloodletter. Right? We play it on four. They have to kill it. We Queen's Bay Paladin it back. And then we're threatening to do, uh, you know, unspeakable things to them on the next turn. <laughs> <laughs> also damage doubling is really good with lifelink because lifelink just says you gain as much life as damage that was dealt so gifted otherborn Kalidus, soren pumping a creature is that true i believe it is true unless blood letters worded weirdly okay yeah i actually do not know because i rem- i know you noted that gray merchant does work with the doubling like, yeah, but that has specific verbiage on it. Yeah. Lifelink, I'm not sure if the amount of life you gain is doubled or not. It would be very helpful. Like, th- this is one of the few decks where I'm actually interested in the life gain because Queen's Bay Paladin is going to take huge chunks out of your own life. I'm, I'm very intrigued by the possibility to just, like, reanimate one Queen's Bay Paladin with the second one. The shell that I was envisioning was actually, like, maxing out on Queen's Bay. Maybe, like, all four. Maybe no champions. Now, in order to support that, you do need more vampires in the graveyard. And I feel like I I keep having this thought. I have no evidence to back it up. But it just seems insane that we're not playing the best two-drop in the format, which is a vampire, which is Blood Tithe Harvester. Like, how, how is it that we can't play that in our ostensibly vampires deck? And it's like perfect with the Queen's Bay Paladin. The Blood Token also supports Queen's Bay Paladin. It lets us like set up this reanimation turn by discarding another fatty to the blood. It just like puts itself in the graveyard. It's just like a very good card. I almost just feel like we should just like force that to happen. Even if we have to sacrifice Mutavolts, like I still think it's worth it to just build a red black mana base. Yeah, that might be worth it. The other, the card that you have here that's actually really exciting to me is Thrill Seeker. Um, Thrill mm-hmm. Seeker pumping uh, blood letter. So it puts it to four power, then it attacks. So it does eight and then you sack it. It still doubles. It still sees itself when it sacks itself. So I actually like that. I don't know that we play even Queen's Bay Paladin in that shell. So I love that base shell that you just proposed. And then like Soren Plussing just kills them, right? Like, 
Like, let's imagine this curve. Soren on three minus play Bloodletter. Mm-hmm. Next turn, we pump up Bloodletter with Soren, and then we play the um, Thrill Seeker. So now it's a five power flyer, right? With lifelink. Mm-hmm. So we attack them for 10 and then sack it and do another 10. Okay. Yeah, m- maybe. I didn't really think about that line. So that, that I, lo- I love that show. That sounds amazing to me. So yeah, if, if we're adding le- red, let's play Blood Tithe Harvester. I don't even know if we play any five drops, honestly. I, I, I just want to do that stuff over and over again. It just sounds so good. It sounds crazy. <laughs> it's a turn four kill. <laughs> even just Thrill Seeker and Bloodletter alone. So you, let's say you play the Bloodletter on turn four. Uh, they can't kill it. You do that line you just described. Two counters on Bloodletter. So you're attacking for... Eight. Eight. You sack the Thrill Seeker first, so that's two. So that's ten. Then you still you're still able to sack the Bloodletter for another eight. No, it's not another eight. Damn, that's a problem. It's only four. Is that true? No, doesn't it see itself? I think when you sack Bloodletter, it doubles its damage, or it's not in play anymore. I think it won't be in play by the time the effect resolves. So that's only, oh, okay. it's only fourteen damage, but that's still pretty good. Because um, the turn you cast Bloodletter, you, maybe you hit them for something else, right? Yeah, yeah. That's still 14 damage off two cards. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, so maybe you play like a five drop or two in there, but I like that deck being way lower to the ground. Um, but yeah, so I I, I love, I, I didn't even, I somehow always forget Thrill Seeker's a vampire. So I, I love the mm-hmm. Thrill Seeker, Blood Tithe Harvester, um, Bloodletter shell. That that's That sounds incredible to me. The part that's really vexing me about Bloodletter is that I would love for the turn that you play the Bloodletter to also involve a massive chunk of damage. But these vampires, they just don't have evasion. They, they can just be blocked. The only one that sort of has evasion is the Gift Aetherborn. Like, there's no flying vampire that I'm really interested in. But maybe I'm not thinking about this wrong. Like, you have Menace Vampires, you have Insolent Neonate, I guess. Maybe you just have to give up on that turn. Well, you still get to attack. I mean, they have to block. <laughs> Yeah, but how hard is it to block a 1-1 Dust Legion Zealot? <laughs> it's not that hard. Well, you got to block Gifted Etherborn. Uh, yeah, that's true. Well, you, you know what you're going to have to do, Dan, is play some three-mana three vampires that have, like, Death Touch or something. Uh, I don't know if they've even printed those, but we'd have to look, we'd have to look into it. We'd have to take a gander at I'm it. I'm absolutely not playing that guy. You want to play Preacher this because I, I want to play anything else. I want to play... Uh, thrill seekers for sure but <laughs> i also don't think we need Kalidus, but maybe i'm just being too optimis- optimistic about that i mean the one thing about Kalidus is <laughs> it just beats red black sack by itself like and it's really good against mono green so like just winning two matchups is is yes when we draw or not draw we don't need Kalidus. it doesn't help why is it good against mono green because it exiles their creatures when we kill them hmm. okay fair enough so you don't need it for your nut draws. I, I totally agree. If it's all going to go smoothly and we're going to blood tithe harvester into Sorin, into Bloodletter, into whatever, then yeah, you don't need Cletus. But if you do need Cletus, you need a Cletus. <laughs> <laughs> you are very happy to have a Cletus when there is a uh, <laughs> an oven and cat in play <laughs> and they can't do anything and the game is over. What I want to do is turn to Blood Tithe Harvester, turn three, Sorin, sack the Harvester, minus Sorin, put in Queen's Bay Paladin, get back the Harvester. Now, next turn, I have two Bloods. I use them both to discard a second Queen's Bay Paladin and a second Vampire, sack the Harvester again. 
attack, get the, get all my stuff back. I'm now at like four life, but I've got such amazing cards <laughs> in play. <laughs> it seems so sweet. I, I don't know. I'm excited yeah, to see how these play. The thing is, like, Queen's Bay Paladin is even better than Champion of Dusk in the best draws, right? Like, right. So that's the thing is, like, when you have Soren, your deck is really good already. So having cards that are awesome, like un, maybe unbeatable, is is close to a reasonable statement for what you just described. I'm not worried about winning the games where I draw Soren. So like, I'm always trying to figure out how to win when I don't draw Soren, and that's where I like playing these cards that are weaker, absolutely weaker, a Kalidus type of card uh, where Soren is not in play. But yeah, with Soren, the, the the line you outlined is like unbeatable. There's dozens of decks in the format that just cannot interact with what you just did. And you kill creatures on the way, which is incredible. All right. Shifting gears to Pugnacious Hammerskull and Fight Rigging. Uh, fight Rigging, we've had a whole week on it. The card is pretty good. It's Hideaway. It, it really wants you to get a seven power creature in play. Well, a six power creature that it will make seven power. Correct. So we're always looking for new creatures that just like naturally have huge power and we have a couple new options pugnacious hammer skull two and a green for a six six dinosaur whenever it attacks and you don't control another dinosaur you have to put a stun counter on your hammer skull that's too bad um it gets a little concussion but i mean it's just like a huge stats and it's on curve so this is more copies of rotting register so if we're thinking our curve is elf into giant creature into fight rigging or fight rigging into giant creature yeah we have more ways to make that happen and on top of that i I see you've included one copy of hulking raptor which is two green green for a five three dinosaur with ward two at the beginning of your pre-combat main phase add green green yeah i mean people keep describing these things where you're like okay you trigger fight rigging you don't just win the game then just so everyone's clear (laughs) (laughs) as someone who's played a lot of fight rigging you do not win the game just because fight rigging goes off so one of the things you need to do is attack you have to turn, you have to enter into the combat phase and then turn your creature sideways. And what I want to do with my Pugnacious Hammer Skull is have another freaking dinosaur in play when that happens <laughs> so I can attack with it again the next turn. So Hulking Raptor is a card that is a reasonable body for fight rigging counters to go on because it has ward. Ward 2 is not nothing. It's, it doesn't make it immune to it, whatever. It also triggers Henge by itself, as we pointed out during spoiler season. It reduces the Henge cost by five, and then it makes another two green mana in your next turn. So Henge functionally costs two. And this is really more of a great Henge deck uh, because it's one of the great payoffs for your um, fight rigging. Now, you said Pugnacious Hammer Skull is like Rotting Regisaur 5 through 8. It's way better than Rotting Regisaur. So it's mm-hmm. like Rotting Regisaur. Instead of having to play that garbage 6-4 creature, I don't even remember what it was called, yeah. that like they could just let you draw and never do any damage with. And it died It died to Lava Axe, which is freaking maddening. Um, we get to play all of our beaters do not die to Lava Axe. <laughs> and that's incredible. That is a huge bonus. And then, of course, neither of these cards have Trample. So we are playing two Vivian and two Ronus to pump them and give them trample. Tell me about the Winding Constrictors. I don't quite understand why that's there. Winding Constrictor is a way to turn your, like, again, your non-nut draws into, like, reasonable plays. So we have Vivian and Pelucranos and Great Henge and Fight Rigging that give plus one, plus one counters. And um, Winding Constrictor is just a card that 
makes those generic plays uh, into way more powerful. Like it just ends the game like two turns faster. Because you need a two drop if your elf dies, and there is there is not a better one in my opinion. That's shocking to me. Well, what about? Um, I, mean, I kind of just want to put ancient one in this deck. I know that totally it fucks up the mana, but ancient one is the eight eight for two that never attacks, never blocks, but it triggers fight rigging. It triggers, uh, it reduces henge all by itself. Yeah, so you can make a deck that is all in on the fight rigging plan where you like you can play a Traxa, you can play the um the new 8-8 dude that when he comes into play you can put all the creatures in your hand into play you can play uh valky like so you could go all in on the fight rigging thing like hmm. again i you, you can just tell temperamentally i'm a lot more conservative like fight rigging is not always going to happen and even if you do all this crazy shit to your deck it might miss <laughs> Um, like I just, I just want to play creatures and attack with them. I, I don't trust all these other things. And I've played Valky. I've played a lot of these like more roll the dice type of shells. And I, I don't, don't, don't like them. Also turn timber symbiosis just as a FYI is really good. You want to play four in the stack. It's just a great card to hit with fight rigging. Yeah. And all your creatures are three men or less basically. So if you have a winding constrictor in play, it adds even an extra counter. Yeah, Symbiosis seems to be one of, the, one of the most important glue cards. So you're saying it's really a great henge deck more than a fight rigging deck. If that's the case, I'm going to go with the four henge. Like, do we even need black? Like, is a Registrar? Registrar seems like kind of a bad card. <laughs> and I'm not, like, in love with the Constrictors or the two of Thought Seas. doesn't seem that important either. Um, like, is there a different color pair you could go with? Like, everything you need seems to be in mono green, except a Registrar. Well... You don't have the power to turn on Henge and Fight Rigging the, on turn four without another card that has six power or seven power. Oh, you got Hulking Raptor. You could just do Lovestruck Beast. Like, I mean, that's that still gets to Henge on turn four. Right, but Lovestruck Beast doesn't let you uh, put the stun counter on your 6-6, six, six, though. Well, okay, so max out the Hulking Raptors first and then add a few more. We'll see. We'll see. Your mana elf can die. <laughs> Just so we're clear, I want to play a bunch of three mana creatures that trigger fight rigging. You're not going to get to four mana every time. Mm. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> we move on to something totally different here. By totally different, I mean this is a combo that seems insane. It's a deep root pilgrimage combo. Deep root pilgrimage. <laughs> Bizarre little enchantment. It's one in a blue. Whenever one or more non-token merfolk you control become tapped, you create a 1-1 blue merfolk creature token with hexproof. All right, so you need your non-token merfolk to become tapped. The most important merfolk here is Kioros Follower. That's green-blue for a 2-2 merfolk that just taps, untaps any other permanent. So if you get two of these in play, they can just untap each other. Uh, infinite times and that triggers deeper pilgrimage every time for infinite hexproof merfolk tokens there isn't really a replicative copy of the follower um so that's going to be a constraint for any any attempt to make deeper pilgrimage work so how do you get around this david well we're playing agatha's soul cauldron which can if a follower has been unfortunately killed by a untoward opponent we can put the follower's ability on a different creature the other thing we have is Kumena, Tyrant of Oraska from the original uh, 
Yeah, Ixalan. And this, yeah, this lets us tap, untap Merfolk we control to do stuff. So this isn't an infinite combo, but you can tap three untapped Merfolk, draw a card. Each individual instance of tapping Merfolk can trigger Deep Root Pilgrimage. So you tap three Merfolk at once, I think you just get one token, right? Or how does that work? Three at once gets one token. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So th this is like sort of our value play. Like when we aren't going to go infinite, we just needed a way to tap our merfolk without being able to attack, which is not always going to be possible. It also has an activated ability so that there aren't a lot of merfolk with activated abilities. So Agatha's Soul Cauldron was uh, needing a friend. And then Priest of Forgotten Gods can turn our merfolk tokens into draws, killing our opponents, killing their creatures, and hopefully drawing towards our combo. So you've got elements of the of the Merfolk aggro plan. There's the Hexcatchers, and then these one-drops that can kind of be two power creatures for one. I don't know if that's actually good enough. You're doing this value thing, and then eventually you combo off? Or are you envisioning that you just draw the Deep Red Pilgrimage and use the extra tokens to just go wide and win that way? Yeah, I, I think it's more like the Pilgrimage is a way to go wide while you're kind of waiting to combo. I, I think you could build a version of this deck with no black, just blue-green. Mm-hmm. Collect a company for Deep Root Pilgrimage. And then maybe like the full 12 lords that we have access to, even right. though I think they're pretty bad. And then basically what you're saying is like, all right, we're just going to go wide and Pilgrimage is just a card that's like helping us be resistant to removal. Like we just play C-Note Scout on one, we play Pilgrimage on two, we attack, we make a 1-1. One, one. Turn three, we play a lord, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know if Pilgrimage is good enough there without ways to tap. So maybe you'd play the full uh, Kumena just as ways to like always be tapping Merfolk. Um, because you can always tap one Merfolk at a time and it gives Kumena unblockable. So you can, if you have three Merfolk in play and you play a Deep Root Pilgrimage, you can just make one ones out of nowhere. And if you have a bunch of Lords pumping them, maybe that's good enough. But I'm more interested in trying to like do the combo thing. I, I don't really believe in like the blue-green shell. I don't think Merfolk are disruptive enough. That just doesn't sound good to me. Like you're saying like one mana... Sometimes two power creatures, you know, that's not really the, the speed of the format. How are you ever going to beat like Convoke, for instance? So I'm at least going to try something like this. It's a problem that without Deep Root Pilgrimage, we're kind of a little soft to like <laughs> our opponents. But I, yeah, I'll have to monkey around with it. I do like that Agatha's Soul Cauldron tar targeting Benthic Biomancer causes it to loot. Hmm. Yeah, like there's plenty of Merfolk that have Explorer. Um, there's the Merfolk Branch Walker. I think Jade Light Ranger is also a Merfolk. So there's more ways to get stuff in the graveyard. You can even play the, the O4, the Merfolk Secret Keeper, if you wanted to. That would all get around having to play Black uh, while still having Soul Cauldron Fuel. Similarly, if the Pilgrimage itself is a card that we consider powerful, there's other ways to tap Merfolk. It doesn't have to be Kamena. Like you could just play Springleaf Drum or any vehicle like that, the new uh, looter boat. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. I started with a lot of those cards and I just rejected them. Like the three, four was there, but Kumanage is better. So I replaced it. Um, I do think that Tyvar is just super important. Like you can't play no interaction at all. Okay. And so Tyvar lets you, lets you play priest. It makes priest a reasonable card. As we point out, if you play priest without Tyvar, it just dies. Um, Tyvar also makes Kiora's follower really good. And is like sort of a pseudo effect. You just like mill searching for it. Um, true, true. So yeah, I'm not saying this deck is even going to be good, but this is where I'd start. I think if you're going to try to do 
a Kiara's follower thing, you should play Tyvar, and then you lead to a bunch of decisions like this. I do think that you could just play a beatdown deck with no Kiora's follower, and just Deep Root Pilgrimage is like a quote-unquote value merfolk token generator with a bunch of lords, and maybe that's better. But I, I, I don't think that deck is good. I'm not saying I don't think this deck's going to be good either, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're getting towards the combo section of, of this decklist spread. This next combo looks exquisite. Uh, this next one here is just mind-blowing combo. So forget about Merfolk. Let's talk instead about Quintorius Cand, <laughs> the new Planeswalker, and Trumpeting Carnosaur. So Quintorius Cand, five mana, three red-white, legendary Planeswalker, four loyalty. Whenever you cast a spell from exile, Quintorius Cand deals two damage to each opponent and you gain two life. That's static text. His loyalty is plus one, make a three-two token. Minus three, discover four. Minus six, exile any number of target cards from your graveyard to add red for each card exiled this way. You may play those cards this turn. What does this have to do with Trumpeting Carnosaur? Trumpeting Carnosaur, four red red for the seven six dinosaur with trample. When Trumpeting Carnosaur enters the battlefield, discover five. And then you can also pay three. That's two and a red to discard it from your hand. Three damage to target creature or planeswalker. Well, the only relationship is that they both discover, right? So Gontorius is discover four, Carnosaurus discover five. I didn't really process what that would mean, but David, you sent me at like 2 a.m. this utterly insane combo list. So I'll let you take it away from here. Yeah, so we differed in spoiler season. You thought Contorius was like maybe just like a reasonable like value play. I thought it was terrible, but I kind of jokingly said, well, it's kind of sweet if you could discover into spark double and then you make a copy of quintorius canned and then it discovers again and now they both trigger when you cast that spell from XL. so that does four and then you were like oh that, yeah it's kind of cute i guess how many spark doubles can we play and so i just kind of like filed that in the way i wasn't thinking about it and i was like well how many spark doubles can we play i was like is clever impersonator legal in pioneer i didn't think it was it actually is and then I realized that Mythos of Aluna is also legal. So that is two blue blue sorcery, create a token that's a copy of target permanent. If you spent red or green to cast this, then that permanent fights. Um, I have a weird love of like instants and sorceries that clone. Uh, Dan's gotten a bunch of weirdo lists from me over the years. So I just was like aware of this card. So I was like, wow, so we have 12 of those. So if we play a Quintorius can and don't play anything that's cheaper than four, except for these, we just kill them. Assuming they can't kill our Quintorius, which many decks can, but <laughs> so we play Quintorius. We only hit a spark double. We play spark double. They lose two. We gain two spark double comes into play. Copies Quintorius discovers again. We find mythos of Aluna. We cast it. They take four. We gain four. We copy Quintorius discover again. We cast another clone. They take six. We take six, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, fine. So now I'm looking for spells that we can cast or do something that don't cost four or less. And I was like, oh, Trumpeting Carnosaur is cool because it lets you do three damage mm -hmm. on turn three, which is a, a key turn for us. It also, again, kills Grease Fang. It's very important because that's the kind of deck that can race us. And then I realized, oh, if we don't play anything else under five, then Trumpeting Carnosaur is actually a rule of eight. So it discovers five. So it'll either hit a clone of itself which will, because Trumpeting Carnosaurus discovers a come into play ability, means it'll copy itself and Mythos of Aluna, etc. Or it'll hit the Quintorius, which will let us start the Quintorius combo. 
That's insane. So no matter what <laughs> happens, you either end up with a shit ton of seven sixes until you find a Quintorius or you hit a Quintorius and kill them. Okay, so now what do we do about <laughs> turns one through four if, if we don't have a Trumpeting Carnosaur? So I've been playing a ton of adventure lists and I've been wanting to play Beanstalk Giant, but you can't because I'm always trying to play three colors and you don't have enough basics. But I was like, oh, Beanstalk Giant hides a ramp spell that lets us turn four Quintorius in a seven mana creature. So I was like, are there any <laughs> other are there any other adventure cards that do that? There aren't, I, or I couldn't find any. But I had, a, again, this is me, like, other brews. I really love Greater <laughs> Tanaki, Tanuki, the cute little uh, Japanese panda bear. Mm -hmm. It is a six-mana, five-five trample enchantment creature, but it has channel, two and a green discard, search your library for a basic land. So I had tried it in some shells where I was, like, ramping into reanimation. Uh, so this is like, sort of like a cheap way to put a five-mana. Six six or five five trample in play, which is hilariously underpowered. But like with Beanstalk, I was trying. To, it doesn't matter. The point <laughs> is that it hides a three mana ramp spell in a six mana creature. And then if we are just playing a bunch of colors, we can play Leyline Binding. We know about that from the Beanstalk um, Cascade list from Modern. And then Magma Opus is a card that lets us ramp for blue red or blue blue um, or red red. So we could play Magma Opus on two. We can cycle Greater Tanuki on three. And then we can play Quintorius. Of course, once people realize what's happening, there's lots of ways to disrupt this. But you just, against red-black, we just play Quintorius and we win. They, if they don't leave up Stomp specifically, they cannot stop us. If they do leave up Stomp, then they just kill Quintorius when he's at one loyalty. And then your clone comes into play and clones a land <laughs> which is not a disaster but it's, it's pretty bad well if they have the mana up you can also just plus quintorius as dan pointed out if you're actually not that far behind on board like i mean quintorius is just a re easier it's a five mana planeswalker on turn four it's not like the worst thing in the world that's true make a spirit <laughs> okay so this is brewing on on hard mode like if you thought karuga was difficult if you want the Trumping Carnosaur to actually function as extra copies of Contorius, you cannot play anything five or less because you don't want the Carnosaur to like hit your five mana like ramp spell or something. So even like the the red virtue that has a, a shock attached, you don't want to put that in. You can't. Yeah, play that. I had that in here at first, and but when I realized the Carnosaur was rule of eight, then I had, took it out. Right, and oh, we can play Karuga in this deck. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> With Carnosaur, it is like guaranteed, right? Like each Carnosaur is going to just keep finding Carnosaurs. You, you, they will eventually find Contorius, right? So there's not like any mystery to that. Like, So you have eight cards that just win. Although that's kind of slow, right? That's a turn five or six kill, quote unquote kill. <laughs> no, it's a turn four kill with a ramp spell. We have 12 ramp spells. Well, Carnosaur itself, I mean, six mana. You get to ramp twice. Yeah, Carnosaur is a turn five kill. Um, so that a turn four format. I mean, is that the case? Uh, just for style points. <laughs> well, we're not playing modern. You are not going to die by turn four in pioneer. For style points alone, we just like have to try this on day one, just in case, just, just for the memes It's absolutely hilarious. Yeah. No notes. <laughs> Six out of 10, no notes, 10 out of 10 sweetness. <laughs> if you want to get serious about this deck, I think I would propose like a crazy transformative board with like four Shark Typhoon and maybe 
cards that actually don't let us combo anymore to try to fight off spirits because otherwise we're just zero percent to beat them yeah i didn't look at what the full range of interaction is that's cost six but can be cast for less are, are there sweepers are there more defensive cards i mean there are sweepers <laughs> there's definitely sweepers <laughs> farewell have you heard of this card <laughs> yeah um but yeah, I think I would literally just get off the combo and play the three two dude that like fights a flying creature, like four of those and four shark typhoons, and just try to like. Or you could just say I just can't beat spirits, just punt it. That's fine too. Yeah, we're not being spirits. Like I can't beat spirits. I can't beat control. That, that feels bad, but. Well, you can beat control, right? You have a ton of late game power in this deck, but you could put gear hulks in for the magma opus thing. I don't know. There's something here. I think as a as a basic concept, we're like we're just gonna play Tanukis and Beastar Giants and see if we can do this. This works. Like maybe you don't need all these clones. Like I think you actually have more than you actually need. Yeah, you could probably cut a couple. You can play Cavern if you want to for sure resolve your Carnosaur. That's actually kind of cool. Yeah. Okay. All right. This is too fun to pass up. So, uh, kudos, David. Uh, I hope this. I hope this works. <laughs> Well, it'll work. I, I you could three two a league with that pretty easily. I think. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh oh yeah. How is red black ever going to beat you? It's it's crazy how little game they have against you. Well, they stomp the Contorius, and then you. They have to know <laughs> to do that, though. They have to know to do that. I think they'll figure it out after the first game. <laughs> All right. Well, now I'm plusing Contorius. Let's fucking go. What if I, I cast Trumpeting Carnosaur? You have stomp up. Stomp yeah. resolves. This game is over. I have four seven sixes in play. So Trumpet and Carnosaur, apart from these insane combat locations, I feel like it's just got to be one of the more exciting finishes in the set. I, I consider this like a game changer. I'm not quite sure how yet, but it's a game changer for value and top end, um, even for combo, right? Like maybe it just does it all, right? It's the fact that you ETB Discover 5 I may be overvaluing how much that is worth, but you can abuse that with Blink, with reanimation. Um, it's castable on its front side if you just like have been playing a long game. Great reanimation target. I feel like this is an Archon of Cruelty style upgrade to like top end in Pioneer. I don't know if you actually believe me, if you're just humoring me, but I'm, I'm intrigued by the looks of this reanimator shell that you've built, which has four trumpeting carnosaurs as your top end. No, I... Well, first of all, you kept insisting cards existed that didn't exist. We are playing Blood for Bones because that is the format of reanimation spell, just so we're clear. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think this card is very good. I pointed out to you what it did, and then you insisted I didn't believe in it. I, I didn't understand what's happening here. So basically <laughs> what we're doing is I'm taking Gabriel Nassif built a shell, which was like a bring to light shell with four Luca and like multiple Atraxa, but he was playing four Sylvan Caryad and four Paradise Druid, which is a shell I've always wanted to try and like red or you always talks me out of it. So it's like, all right, the fourth greatest player of all time is doing it. And I think he like four, won the league and did really well in a challenge. It's like, ah, that's all I needed. Just like Gabrielle Nassif is like waving at me from gay Perry. Like, all right, that's, that's the, the green light. So we are playing these untargetable creatures because we are still playing Luca and we're still playing blood for bones. So we want to have bodies in play. 
Our curve of normal creatures stops at two. So Luca targeting Sylvan Caryatid, Blood Tithe Harvester, or Paradise Druid always hits Trumpeting Carnosaur or Atraxa. Every time. We also have tokens that come into play because we have four Fable, one Chariot. So if we sack those, we can hit a 2-2. Two -two. So we really don't want to Luca those tokens if we can help it. We can Luca the flipped Fable and, and get those. Carnosaur can hit Luca, and then Luca can sack Carnosaur to get a Traxa if we want. Like that Ooh. line is always there. If Carnosaur hits Blood for Bones, because Blood for Bones doesn't target, we can always sack the Carnosaur, get it back into play to trigger again, and then whatever creature we originally Blood for Bones, our Paradise Druid, our Blood Tithe Harvester, that just comes back to our hand. And then we get to trigger Carnosaur again. So let's just outline a line here. We play Carry Added on two. On turn three, I discard Carnosaur on end of turn, do three damage to whatever, a Bone Crusher Giant. And I, you know, whatever, Thought Seized him. I Blood for Bones away my Sylvan Carry Added. I get Carnosaur into play. Then Carnosaur finds, you know, whatever, Disruption Spell, possibly a bad 2-2. Two -two, but if it hits a Blood for Bones, it sacks itself, puts itself back into play, and puts the Carry Added back into my hand. Or I can choose not to cast the Blood for Bones if I don't want. Then it triggers itself again. We can find a Chariot, we can find a Fable, etc., etc. So we have a lot of like removal hidden in here because we have four Push plus the four Blood Tithe Harvester plus the four Trumpeting Carnosaur. I keep mentioning this. It sucks to play Fatal Push against specifically Grease Fang. We just have four main deck ways to kill Grease Fang on curve, on plan. Nothing fancy has to happen. Uh, and then we just have this like crazy late game grind package where we just have Carnosaur finding more Carnosaurs. I guess we have to be on the play for that to happen the way we want to. Yeah, I mean, they typically do it by four, not three, is my experience. Like they, their nut draw is pretty rare. Hmm. The Paradise Root is seems like the weak link here. Um, is it that important to have that effect? Like once you tap it, it's no longer protected. Yeah, I mean, you could cut some. Okay. But I mean, I still want the ramp effect because to your point, we want to, we can also just play Carnosaur. This is not like some crazy card. It's like, oh, they attack our graveyard. We can't do anything. It's like carry added plus fable. Just cast it the next turn. <laughs> this is very, very easy to do. Yeah. So getting the Carnosaur back, um, I did check and David was correct. There, there isn't this four mana reanimation that I thought there was. Um, there is the, the new soil coil, soul coil, soul coil viper. We talked about that. It's probably not good without exactly Tyvar to give it haste. There yeah. is cruelty of Gix. I thought it was kind of interesting. Like it's a very greedy kind of card, right? If you, if you don't have to read ahead, you get all this stuff, right? You get a duress and you get a diabolic tutor and you get a reanimation. Or is that just like two? Simple? I've played it again. I like keeping the curve low. I like having four mana spells to be able to cast uh, with disruption. If I'm playing my mana creature into discarding uh, Carnosaur on end of turn. I mean, it's a fine card. I played it. It's not necessarily better or worse than blood for bones. Hmm. Um, in some ways I like blood for bones better as a Carnosaur hit because you get Carnosaur back immediately without anything in the graveyard it's just like a value play it just replaces itself again so you're essentially cycling with blood for bones and getting a raised dead on something well cycling we're getting to discover five that's a little better than drawing a card 
Well, I guess that all depends, right? That, that's where like that five, it looks so impressive, but then in practice, it's going to hit a one or two drop most of the time. But my point is, if it does that, it always draws a card, always draws a non-land card. And then sometimes it gives you one, two, three, or four or five mana. Also in the Blood for Bones line, it turned on push for you if you really want to get <laughs> fancy. So it turns Trumpeting Carnosaur into a raised dead that can make another five mana <laughs> and draw a card. Yeah, I'm on board. I'm intrigued. Um, excited for the new Carnosaur era, <laughs> whether with this Blood for Bones deck or with the Contorious <laughs> Discover combo deck. All right, David, what's next? All right, last one for me. I assume people are going to make Collected Company Amalia Aguirre list with Wild Growth Walker. I've come to terms with it. I hope that deck isn't good because if it is, it's just fucking miserable, but fine. It's great. I don't want to do that. We all know what the shell is going to be. There's literally no thinking that has to go into it. Is it good or is it bad? We'll find out week one. <laughs> exactly like the... um. The, uh, we were worried about that 2-4 lady that sacks a creature to tutor. I forget what card it was we thought was going to break it. Maybe it was a Tyvar. We're like, all right, is this going to be good? Like, everyone tried it week one. Nobody 5-0'd. Okay, we're, we're safe. Instead of that, I was trying to think of, all right, Amelia's really good with incremental life gain. Mm -hmm. So we want to play Prosperous Innkeeper, or there are white, um, what we call Soul Sisters. I don't want to play those cards. They're terrible. Innkeeper is at least interesting. It fixes our mana, because we're Amelia is a white black card. Incremental value, great. Corsair of Crufix is a card I really love. It's not really pioneer power level anymore, unfortunately, but it is a card that incrementally gains life. And I'm really interested in playing Corsair of Crufix with Kellen, Daring Traveler, which was like the first card spoil. We didn't know how good it was because we didn't know what maps were. Well, it turns out the map part is relevant to the Amalia Aguirre combo because it explores and wild growth walker sees that explore and gains life and starts your thing but kellen with corsair of crufix gives you an incredible control over the top of your library corsair crufix puts lands into play that are on top of your library and then when kellen attacks it puts a creature that costs three or less well our deck is basically all those cards minus four <laughs> basically everything does is those things so we get to if a land is on top play it creatures on top attack with kellen Draw that card, find a land for Corsair, play it. Um, Eldritch Evolution is a is a card we maybe want to play because we're playing these combo pieces and they're unique pieces. We don't have Rule of Eight, so Eldritch Evolution kind of finds the missing piece. And Eldritch Evolution on Corsair is a card interaction I love with because we can play a one of Crested Sunmare and get two horses. <laughs> and we're already playing all this other incremental life gain. We're playing Prosperous Innkeeper. I have a one of Scoos in here. We have um, Wild Growth Walker triggering. We have a one of uh, Extraction Specialist. So we actually just have ways to gain life for the horse for the rest of the game. Yeah, so it's basically the combo. We're playing no interaction whatsoever. We are playing C-Note Scout because we need uh, native ways to explore. And then we're playing a one of Silver Smoke Ghoul. When we do our loop thing, it will go to the graveyard. We'll get it back after they kill our Amalia, which they 100% will. So. Just to be clear, what the combo actually does is it explores 25 to 30 times, which gains you, you know, up, up to 90 life, and then you end up with a 20 power Amalia. That's it, right? It doesn't actually win. Does not win. Destroys all other creatures, so you lose your board as well. Okay, so the board will be clear except for a 20 power Amalia, 
and you've got a bunch of lands in your hand. You've most of your deck is in your graveyard as well. I'm concerned that that just like doesn't actually win the game. <laughs> like they just fatal push it. They pay the three life. And yeah, I mean, I'm intrigued by it. So I'm not convinced that like people are going to solve this right away at all. Like I don't actually. Oh, I don't think, I don't think it's going to be good. I think you can make the, uh, what's the white, white instant. Uh, rally the ancestors. Yeah. yeah. You can play a rally the ancestor shell. You can play a Co- like the thing with Coco, at least is you do it on end step in theory, you still have to hit the right two creatures. Um, the one thing I like is that Amalia destroys creatures and Crested Sunmire actually gives Indestructible to the other horses. What other horses? <laughs> oh, the horse tokens we made. Okay, <laughs> I see. It makes horses. What the hell? <laughs> sure, sure, sure. I forgot. I forgot about all the horses we made. My bad. <laughs> so you like you Courser turn two, you Sack Courser, you get Crested Sunmare turn three, so you have 10 power in play. And then you could, whatever, draw into the combo the next turn, maybe. Uh, and then you kill all their creatures and all your creatures except for the extra horse. But I'm more interested in the incremental life gain. I don't even know if, like, maybe you just want one Wild Growth Walker or two as, like, tutor targets. Uh, but I'm more interested in the Kellen-Courser interaction. Like, again, I just want to play decks that just see a ton of cards and make a ton of choices. And cards like that just give me a shit ton of uh, reach through my deck. Kellen and Corsair is, is interesting. It's not necessarily like a great follow-up on turn three. Like you're not going to get a land that turn. You just have to, it's like not any different from blind attacking with Kellen on turn three since you're tapped out in major land drop already. But the fact that that in- incremental life gain supports the combo, right? That's part of the tricky thing is that you also have to like somehow initiate the chain with wild growth and Amalia that's intriguing. I, I kind of think that Collected Company is still going to be better than Eldritch Evolution, despite the Crested Sun Marilyn. Uh, it just seems weird to not play Company, but I'm willing to try it. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the deck that people will play will be Company, no Kellen at all. Um, yeah, you just try to get lucky. It's like a very reasonable thing to do. I do feel like Lunark Veteran is like actually pretty good. Like That's the Pioneer Legal Soul. No, <laughs> that is not a good card. That is a terrible card. You will probably have to play it, though. I think I think in the in the cocoa shell, that will be a four. Hmm. All right. So that's the Amalia combo. I will just finish off with one last brew. I'm interested in the baby dino prince. I'm talking about it's Queenth, the firstborn of Kishath. <laughs> a signpost uncommon in, in cruel color. So, you know, it's going to be good when it's a signpost uncommon. <laughs> 2-3 haste for a red and a green legendary and when it comes into play you may pay two if you do so you can have target dinosaur you control chomp something deal damage equal to its power to target creature the opponent controls uh that's not particularly great in the abstract they can actually respond by killing the dinosaur to stop that from happening but i was more interested in the fact that isquinth just is a legend at the magic mana cost for bard class so my first instinct is just like put Isquinth into Bard class. Now we have more interaction. Uh, we have more haste. We have more free stuff. Um, I have no interest in playing Bergy, so I'm going to be following the... There's kind of like two different families of Bard class decks that are like tier C or tier D. Um, the one that doesn't play Bergy, I like that one better. So I've got just a basic list here where I've added four Isquinth to that. So Isquinth does, does, has haste? It has haste, yeah. Okay. 
So what I initially hoped would happen is that now that I have all these haste legends that I could play a bunch of Samut Vizier of Noctamoons and have that be like my secondary engine. But when I looked at it and really just was honest with myself, these small haste creatures are not going to connect for damage. They're just too small. Um, they have no evasion. So I'm only playing two Samut in my bard class shell. However, <laughs> I was like <laughs> staring at this and feeling like maybe this is not the best I can do. Like maybe we can go a little bit deeper. So I wanted to revisit our old friend Hero's Blade, which I think right around when Kaldheim came out, or was it Strixhaven? We just got like very interested, or I did at least, and like what happens if I have Hero's Blade into a haste legend? And we had all kinds of weird stuff going on. We had uh, Dalakos, the Crafter of Wonders. <laughs> we had Arnie Brokenbrow, I thought was actually pretty good. I ended up playing like a red-green Llanowar Elf into Arnie type, just generic beatdown deck. It was sort of functional. And there were like cute interactions you could do that involved playing Hero's Blade and then like immediately connecting with a juiced up creature the next turn. That was a long time ago. We didn't even have Bard class back then. Uh, and since then, we've not only gotten Bard class, we've gotten a bunch of other legends that incidentally have haste. So what if, what if I think of this more as like a Hero's Blade aggro deck that also just like happens to play Bard class? Not so much for the combo potential, but just as like uh, Anthem that randomly draws my deck if the game goes on. So it may look at first glance like it's similar to the Bard class shell, but I'm now adding four Heroes Blade and I'm very interested in like a few specific interactions. So Heroes Blade followed up by uh, Ruby Daring Tracker. Now you have a 4-4 haste. Ruby attacks, sees that she has four power and gets, gives herself another two power. So she attacks as a 6-6 just by herself with a Heroes Blade. Similarly, Isquinth, normally 2-3 haste. If you add a Heroes Blade, he's now 5-5. Five, five. Um, you stack the triggers so that the blade attaches first. 5-5 five, five haste, you have the option to pay two more to like Flame Tonkavu that just kills Shaildred. That's fine, which this deck previously could never do. Samwit, likewise, is much more likely to connect and draw that card if it's a if it's a 5-5 five, five first strike haste. You could even consider Agatha, uh, Agatha the Vile Cauldron. If she has a Hero's Blade attached, she's now got four power, so her ability only costs two to activate. And you know, I didn't really find much of other cards that benefit from the massive reduction, but there are cards you could consider. I put some in the show notes. So I'm just like wondering if this actually moves the deck a little bit closer to something. What do you think, David? Well, like, first of all, I just hate bard class. It's just, I hate cards that are totally agnostic about text. It's like, oh, this is just a red green legend. So the first list might be good or bad. You would know I wouldn't. I love this second list. It's so much more interesting as a brewer that we actually have a problem to solve. Not just look at the upper right corner of a card. Mm -hmm. Use Hero's Blade. Now, you and I have a weird love of Hero's Blade. So, you know, we're. I think we have to go to our weekly meeting later on this week. I sit in a semicircle with some uh, stale coffee. But it uses a unique card to solve problems in a very unique way. So... Obviously, I don't know about every card choice here. We'd have to really play around with it. But I love specifically the Ruby line because Ruby is the card that's awesome in the combo lines with Bard class. Mm -hmm. And now it's awesome in the other lines. Isquinth sucks, but Bar <laughs> Hero's Blade actually turns into something that's useful because the fight ability is basically nothing. We don't have any other dinosaurs in these shells, so it basically mm -hmm. can't kill anything. And paying four mana to be like a horrific... Um, 
Bone Crusher Giant, which is bad, which is kind of a mediocre card in a bunch of other matchups anyway. But now, like exactly like you say, like now Heroes Blade to turn three, whatever, Arnie Broken Bow, and then they play Shieldred. Okay, they've stabilized, and we're down cards because we had to play the Heroes Blade. Insquint gets us back the card and puts them under pressure. I, I love that. So, uh, again, we'd have to negotiate all these cards. I don't think Agatha of the Vile Cauldron is is worthwhile unless you like fully build around it. So, you know, we can quibble about this or that. I won't do that. But I, I love the shell uh, that's here uh, uh, quite a bit. Me too. I'm sure I'm going to be heartbroken when we actually play it and Heroes Blade is just like a terrible card <laughs> every time. <laughs> but it is card down and it's like, you know, it puts you behind every time you spend turn two doing it. But it's so sweet on turn three. Um, so we'll see. All right, uh, you'll be hearing more about these as we get a chance to play them. Um, yeah, so there you go, like 15 concepts. <laughs> what do you think, David? Do you want to just do a quick report on your turtle deck or should we save that? I will do a quick report on the turtle deck because I got so close to a 5-0 and it was more of a proof of concept, a sanity check. So I tried a bunch of mid-range lists. I've got the best of them posted here, which is a pretty cool, if I do say so myself, a teamer turtle shell that looked to mill um, magma opus and then just hard cast Tolarian or uh, torrential gear hulk. And I think I three twoed, but I had all these problems with mana. So I tried to fix the mana base a little bit. Maybe you don't need to play four field passages. I would like miss on my turtle all the time, which is like really hard to do. So it's just bad luck. Uh, this is a list I'll revisit, maybe if, if a new card gets printed. But I'm also playing a bunch of random one-ofs because we have the Gearhawk. So, like, All Fires of Victory, All Cinderclasm. Hmm. Anyway, super cool list. That one did okay. The list that was great is this red-green list. So, just a reminder, we were looking to play the sort of red-green mid-range list. But instead of, like, a Crow and War and other good cards, <laughs> we're using the power of Huntsman's Redemption to tutor up key pieces of our combo. So Huntsman's Redemption can tutor for Tortoise itself. It can tutor for our one of Crackdown Construct. And Tortoise plus Mutavolt means that we can make our Crackdown Construct infinitely large if they're both in play. And Huntsman's Redemption finds the Construct and gives it Trample. Or if we have Draconic Destiny, we can make our Mutavolt infinitely large or, or our Lair of Hydra because it becomes a creature with one colon... Target creature or creature gets plus one plus oh. So with turtle in play, that means zero colon. Our creature gets plus one plus oh. So we take it to the skies. The list I have up is a little different. I'd already made some changes. Um, we were playing the one of four one guy. When he exerts, you untap all your creatures. So that was like another combo piece with a flipped fable. But um, basically, I went four one. A lost very close match to a red white convoke. Uh, I lost the two games on the draw and would have killed them the next turn. They were able to kill me. Crushed Spirits, Crushed Lotus Field, beat uh, Nasif's new Bring to Light uh, Jun list. That's what inspired uh, one of my shells above, even though I defeated it easily. And then uh, beat Mono Green exactly as I said I would. Turn two Huntsman's <laughs> Redemption. They cannot beat it. I have the screenshots to prove it. I edited out the comments from my opponent who was not happy. So we'll just... <laughs> He, he or she was having a tough day. We won't uh, hold that against them. But you see here how great their turn three was. They have Nykthos in play. They have a four-four old girls troll that drew a card with Kiora and a, a Wolf Willow Hollow. They just take lethal damage from an infinitely large, um, <laughs> an infinitely large crackdown construct. 
and it feels pretty goddamn good. So lots of lots of updates to be made here. I don't think I want to play any fables at all. So that I, I've updated the number of thrill seekers to two. You might even go to three. The card was awesome. Um, I got rid of, I was playing a one of uh, the six, five artifact that does three when it comes into play. I've got two Crone Wars instead. Um, but there's still three fables in here. So you can cut those and replace them with a, a wide variety of cards, I think. So the core combo of Blossoming Tortoise, Mutavolt, uh, or Lear of the Hydra, and then either Draconic Destiny or Crackdown Construct. That was how you're winning most of your games, or were you winning with a fair plan of just like Reckless Storm, Secret Chariot, etc.? It was kind of like a 50-50 against like Mono Green, Chariot is bad, so Tortoise would win the game, Tortoise combo. Against like Spirits, Chariot's a clock that they can't beat, and Reckless Stormseeker flips all the time because they want to hold up their counter magic. So uh, I would win with that. So it's like you just have these two different ways to win, which is great. And the initial sketch had like no interaction whatsoever. Um, we're still kind of doing that, but are, are you interested in playing interaction or was that just like not part of the plan? Um, I mean, I, I'm not interested in playing Bone Crusher Giant, if that's what you're asking me. I have zero interest in playing Bone Crusher Giant. Um, the card that impressed me was Voldaren Thrillseeker. I added it. Uh, I did not like the 6-5 flying uh, uh, Sky Sovereign. So I'm playing to a Crone War. Because we have Reckless Stormseeker, Crone War is actually even better than it normally would be because we can take the creature and then give it haste. Um, and I'm proposing, you kind of laughed at me, I'm proposing adding uh, one of the Hot Springs, the one red-green, put a plus one, plus one counter on a creature, and then <laughs> a modified creatures have, have uh, haste. Okay. Just because our best lines all involve a haste granter on two Stormseeker, this card would be a fifth version of that. And then pumping chariot and and or tortoise. Like they both are sort of tightening in a way. Like tortoise True. has a come into play and an attack trigger, and so does chariot. True. And like the the tortoise getting to come into play and attack, if if for some reason it doesn't die, if they don't if they can't block it, you've just gotten so much value because you've had so many looks to find a mutavolt, which sets up your combo. Like it just finds one of your combo pieces by itself while being a combo piece. So it's strange in that way that it, it like kind of does it all. Well, if that's the case, we should play two hot springs. I mean, that seems great. I mean, who needs Oath of Nyssa? Forget that. Sure. I mean, I guess the, the card I'm looking to cut is the three fables. So you can play a lot of cards in those slots. I would look to maybe with a new set, play four of the hammer skull. Like if you want to just get in on the beatdown plan. Because Taurus can find Mutavolt to make a dinosaur for you. Ah, uh, true. True. Um, but then, then you have to cut some slots. But yeah, the, the tortoise part the tortoise part was very relevant. It won multiple games for me. That's super impressive. Man, this would be such a sweet 5-0. It's a shame. It just fell just short. We gotta come back for this one. <laughs> come yeah, back I'm, for I'm gonna re- I'm gonna play an updated version for sure, but for sure play two thrill seekers, maybe three. The car that card is awesome. Thrill Seeker, the turn you give Trample plus two plus two with Hunt Master's Redemption is a way to win fair games without having to quote unquote combo, but it is not fair. All right, so it's confirmed. Fable is out. Hunt's Master is in. The, yes. The new Fable of the Mirror Breaker is Huntsman's Redemption. Uh, Steve yes. B called it. So, All right. I think uh, we'll leave it there for now. Hopefully, if you stuck with us this long, you found something you liked in these lists, but... If not, I mean, there's so much more to explore, so much more. And we're going to be digging into all of it in the coming weeks. All right, sir. Take care. (laughs) Happy brewing. See ya.